What can we see in player valuations at the All-Star break? I'll ask Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 19th. It's show number 32 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus discussing first-half player valuations, fabbing Lourdes Gurriel, fabbing minor leaguers in general, Devers versus Tatis versus Acuna, Kashner in Boston, his boons and banes, and even more. We'll have our Market Watch Player News reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including injuries to Brendan Rodgers in Colorado and Chris Taylor in Los Angeles, as well as rotation issues in Atlanta and other National League player news. And Jock Thompson will have news from the American League, including Mike Montgomery, Willie Calhoun, and other American League players. I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about stolen bases and manipulating the category. We'll have our commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Texas second baseman Eli White. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at both ends of a Saturday-Sunday National League Central cage match. St. Louis right-hander Miles Michaelis in Cincinnati to face right-hander Luis Castillo on Saturday, and right-handers Jack Flaherty and Anthony DeSclafani teaming up on Sunday. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about Pitches Per Out, a new way to assess starting pitcher efficiency. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The second half is underway, and the dog days are here. We gotta talk some baseball. Now, most people think the idea of dog days stems from the behaviors of dogs and wolves and coyotes during the hottest part of summer, lazing around in the shade trying to escape from the heat. My dog Leo camps out under our air conditioning vents. But according to the online etymology dictionary, yes, that's a thing, the dog days aren't really about dogs at all. Instead, the term comes from astronomy. It seems the hottest part of the summer, early July to mid-August, aligns pretty closely with the heliacal rising of Sirius, the dog star. Now, heliacal rising, according to Baseball HQ's resident astronomer Dave Adler, means the star rises at the same time as the sun, so we see the star just before sunrise at the eastern horizon. Anyhow, experience tells us that these are also often the days when a fantasy championship can be won, through, dare I say it, dogged effort while competitors are, dare I say it, dogging it, curled up next to their air conditioning vents. So keep listening to Baseball HQ Radio, and reading the Baseball HQ site will give you some pointers you can use to shepherd your team and whip it into shape, and maybe have an ease your time taking the blue ribbon for best in show. In the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, Part one of our feature expert interview with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. Mike, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a while. It really has. It's great to be out again, Patrick. How many teams are you running this year, and uh, how are they doing? Well, if you include 
score sheet, which I'm in one of those, I have seven, although that's not really very involved. So let's say six. I'd say all my teams are kind of in the same place where nobody's in first. Uh, they're all mostly competitive except my labor NL team, which is kind of middle of the pack and, and too far back. But I don't know how, how much of a good chance I, I have to win. Like I'm kind of between third and sixth in all my leagues and really kind of an outside chance of winning at best. So a decent year considering these are mostly expert leagues, but you know, obviously you, you know, you want to do better at least have one league where you're, you're out in front. Before we started recording this call, Mike, we were talking about our league that we both play in the Tout American League league. And uh, I'm fourth and you're fifth, I think. And we're kind of almost within reach of seeing the, the first place teams. And it's not a runaway like it was in some past years, including last year. And I thought you made an interesting point about that we have to be looking beyond just how many points behind am I, and you have to really start digging in and looking at the categories. So maybe you could explain what you mean by that, because sometimes being 10 points behind is different from being 10 points behind in a different circumstance. Yeah, so, you know, just, just to kind of give an example, like I'm kind of looking at where I am right now. So I'm, I'm about 20 points out in, in Tout Wars. Uh, to, be, uh, to be honest, and this is kind of something we talked about before the show, I guess that my ceiling is probably in the mid, like realistic ceiling is probably in the mid eighties. And that's if everything breaks, right. That's probably a third place finish. I don't really think I can win. Um, you know, obviously I keep trying because it's a redraft league and, and there's no reason not to. Um, but sometimes you're in a position where, you know, there, there's a big club of teams where, you know, you find yourself, you know, just to give a categorical example, I don't think I have a chance of winning labor NL, but I, I see there in you know three or four categories, uh, I, I, offensive categories. There's a pretty easy path to jumping up about 20 points total because I'm at the bottom of a big clump of teams in in those four categories. So that's really what that analysis comes down to. And you know, part of it is you know whether in a keeper league whether you're going to go for it or not. But part of it in a redraft is just maximizing your resources and making sure you try to trade where you should trade as opposed to getting complacent. And I think in expert leagues, we even see among these experts. Uh, they, they really do get complacent and kind of tend to sit back and go, well, you know, somebody's 20 points ahead. It's like, well, that might not mean as much as it seems just based on the number. What I like to do, Mike, is I lay out a matrix and I go through the categories and I give myself the best possible outcome. I could gain in uh, tout, for instance, uh, when I project the home runs, I'm within five home runs picking up three points. I think that's doable, so I'll give myself a plus three. But at the same time, I'll give all the guys I'm chasing as much opportunity as I can, you know, legitimately do to give them minus points. And then at the end of, after I've gone through all the categories, I'll add up all my pluses and all their minuses. And I'll say to myself, Hey, wait a second. I do have a chance. Or even if I get, even if everything just falls exactly right, I'm still not going to be able to do this. And then I'll, uh, I, w I will keep trying, but my aim will be different. I'll be trying to maximize my points just for bragging rights, uh, you know, try to finish second because, you know, that's better than finishing fifth. I'm not going to quit, but I'm also not going to get disappointed if I don't win when my matrix says I, ha re I really legitimately have no path to winning. Yeah, and I, I do a similar exercise, and, you know, I, I do the same thing. I have a, a grid, and uh, I'll put – it's probably not a grid. It's more like a chart, but I put that together and, and take a look. And, you know, some of this, you know, you, you let off with this question. You know, when I used to be in one league, you know, back before I was, you know, an expert, 
I, I really just concentrated on that league, and it didn't really matter, you know, how far out I was, and the decision was a keeper decision. Now that I'm in so many leagues, I mean, some of this honest, some of this, to be honest, is which league am I going to focus on more? Uh, you know, if I'm in a league like Tout, that's a high-profile league, and I'm in fifth place like I am now, and I could finish second or third, I think that's pretty good. I mean, yeah, we want to win. You know, nobody remembers who finished second, but for me, that matters. Uh, whereas if I'm in a league where I'm in eighth or ninth place, even if it's an expert league, I might be like, well, I'm going to keep making moves, but I'm not going to put the same level of effort in trying to make trades and, you know, maneuver my fab, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, there's only so many hours in the day. I, like you, I started off pre, uh, pre-expert pre as a, a playing in a single American League-only keeper, and you can devote a lot of resources to it. And I was single, which means I had more time available because I wasn't looking after a house. I rented an apartment and all of these life things that go on that uh, allow you or prevent you from digging into 10 different leagues. And uh, I'm only in three, and one of them I've pretty much thrown in the towel already. It's a keeper, and I'm just trying to you know, dump my stars to get some useful building blocks for the future. But uh, otherwise, yeah, you got to kind of pick your battles. Yeah, that's a large part of what it comes down to is, you know, you're, I kind of envy you being in three, although, as I said before, you know, the score sheet league is not really that involved. Um, you know, I've actually cut back. Like I, I was closing in on double digits, and I, I just found that I, it wasn't fun. Like there was just too much every week trying to track pitching matchups, trying to track lineups. Um, you know, I was even in a daily like moves first come first serve league, and that that, that one I got rid of right away because I was like, this is just stressful. Let's talk a, a bit about uh, Tout Wars. I know people, the last thing people want to hear is how you're doing in this particular league, but I, I, th- I thought you made some interesting moves, and I'd like to get your take on why you did them, because that's informative for everybody. Uh, the first one is, in Tout American League, after Toronto demoted Lourdes Gurriel, uh, and he got waived in our Tout League as a result, you grabbed him up pretty much right away, and you went pretty big on his bid. And at the time, I remember thinking... Really? Lourdes Gurriel is hitting 190 or whatever it was at the time, and he, I don't even know if he had a home run. What made you so confident in Gurriel when, up till his demotion, he'd been really bad? Well, you know, so uh, there's a couple of factors that played into this. One, you know, it, it's an ale only. Uh, I, I'd say I had an opportunity to pick him up in, in my deep mix league, and I, I just passed. Uh, just because in that format I was like, well, you know, unless it's a minimal bid, unless I, I've got a deep reserve list, it doesn't make sense. Uh, very different in Tout AL where you, you really want any, you know, warm body and, and somebody with the opportunity to play. Uh, but the second thing that, that tied into the, the pickup and the decision was that a lot of the issues he was having were, were stemmed, you know, with his fielding and the infield. He was having trouble. He had expressed that. He, he was not, you know, happy. He, he was pretty dissatisfied. I um, mean, also kind of point out, this is kind of something interesting about Griel. So, I purchased Grail on, on the 27th, or that's when the fab run. He had homered three days in a row. Now, you know, I, I know we're not necessarily – he had been called back up on the 24th, and he had three consecutive homers. I know we're not supposed to bet too much on, you know, recent performance, but it was more a matter of I looked at the hitter, um, you know, looked at the skill set, looked at the opportunity, and was like, well, you know, I'm not bidding my whole bankroll. I'm bidding about a tenth of it for an opportunity that a young player – who has come back up and had the talent was going to continue to perform. Um, you know, did, did I expect him to, you know, I think since I have him on my team, he's slugging. Yeah. Uh, he's slugging 628 Did I, with 14 home runs. Did I expect that? No, but, but I thought he could be a, a decent contributor. And how confident are you that he can keep it up, that he's straightened everything out? 
I mean, I think there's going to be be some some fade or, or regression. I don't expect him to to perform at this level. Um, and in town, I'm a little wary because you know it's an on base league, and he's not an on base player. Although I seem to have a lot of players like that on this team, not necessarily by design. But I, I think he's a legitimate hitter, and you know, some whether it's the the ball or you know is juiced or not, um, he's capitalizing on it. So I, I think most of this. Is pretty sustainable. The one, you know, one thing that makes me nervous with players like Guriel, he doesn't walk a lot. Um, I, I do kind of want to see, you know, if pitchers start laying off of him more, you know, not throwing as many pitches, you know, does he chase or, or does he kind of take the walks and, and just kind of learn that way? It will be interesting, and uh, walk rate is sometimes something that comes with maturity. He's still only 22 or 23, which is something that I think plays in his favor, that uh, you, you look at a guy who had a pretty good pedigree, not only in baseball, but in his actual bloodlines. His dad was a terrific player. His brother's a pretty good player as well, and and there's lots of reasons to be optimistic. And as you said, in a single-league format where you're basically looking for every warm body you can find, sometimes you have to start looking at those kind of intangibles. I was, you know, I, I was a little bit surprised. So Chris Liss dropped him. And another player I picked up, who I don't think you mentioned in your rundown, was Renato Nunez. And it was a similar thing where I bid about that amount on Nunez. And, you know, it was about a tenth of my budget, maybe a little bit more. And really nobody else bid like that. I, I just feel like in, in a mono league, if somebody's getting the plate appearances, I mean, unless they're a complete drag and, you know, someone like Yolmer Sanchez where they're doing just about nothing, you kind of have to roll with that player for better or for worse. And, you know, it's one of the drawbacks of, of a mono league if you like making moves during the season because you're kind of stuck. So, yeah, I, I was surprised that those players were, were even out there. And, yeah, the odds of them both working out were, were pretty slim and they were working out to this degree. But I was really making the play more for the plate appearances and, you know, just to get those. We, I think we know in an only league, that volume really is what carries you on offense, even in this era when so many players are, are hitting home runs. Yeah, the Jason Gray model of success, right? Just amass plate appearances and good things will follow. Uh, and and I, that's certainly true because there's so few of them, relatively speaking, to go around. Uh, you mentioned the um, limited ability we have to make moves in an only league, especially in a league like ours where there's a reserve list that soaks up even more of the players coming out of auctions so that uh, when you look at the free agent list of hitters, especially, it's not even a page long and three quarters of them are guys who have caught three games and then gone off to oblivion and the pitchers list is longer but when you look at the kind of pitchers you want it's pretty short as well and in response to that in part mike in american league tout owners are making more and more speculative preemptory bids on prospects who might be coming up the tout rules let us fab players in the minor leagues if we're willing to keep them active for a week and in tout, we saw Kevin Biggio got signed, Oscar Mercado got signed, Jordan Alvarez got signed, uh, Jose Arquiti recently got signed. All of these guys were signed a week or more before they actually got called up. And I've heard from some listeners and Twitter followers that they don't like the rule that we're allowed to do that because they'd rather wait until the players are called up and everybody has a chance to, to make a kind of bid based on the fact that they're up. But what do you think of the rule? You know, when I, when I first started playing tout way back in, 2010, I didn't like the rule. Um, I, I, I thought it was just kind of confusing. I, I like the, the more the old school idea of, of labor, which, which in the only leagues, you're st- actually even in the mixed league, you're not allowed to bid on minor leaguers. But the more that I play with this rule, I, I really like it. I, I like the idea that there is a decision point. Like, you know, we just talked about amassing at-bats. Well, 
you know, losing a week, having a dead slot on your roster for a week, assuming that player's not called up, is, is detrimental. Like, you do have a decision point. And even in top mix where the rule exists, I mean, that's really detrimental in a 15-team mix unless it's a, a catcher to, to be carrying a zero. Um, the other reason I'm okay with it, so if Town had like a 12 or 15-player reserve list, I, I feel like that would be a mechanism to, to stash players. It wouldn't necessarily, you know, be fair or would, would kind of make things more difficult. But because Tout in, in the mono leagues is four-player reserve, there really still is a decision point. Like, you, yes, you can stash a player. And, you know, I, I, I did my case, I, Nate Lowe, I, I bit aggressively. That could still work out, actually, in the second half. But I've kind of had to stick with him. I know you picked up Oscar Mercado. Yeah. Um, you know, it just kind of depends on how your reserve list looks. Um, some people in Tout like to use those reserve slots to, to cycle through pitchers and, and use favorable matchups. Uh, you know, you, it, I like the choices that it gives you. You know, you're, the point you made about the reserve list, uh, labor with, with the six-player reserve list and you can't speculate on minor leaguers, that free agent pool is, is just depressing week in, week out. It's kind of nice to have that flexibility to, to do something else. The other thing about it that, uh, that I like is, I, and I don't know how much listeners and readers and, and people out there who are playing in their own leagues look at Tout Wars and labor and these kind of things to get some guidance or to get some hints or to you know maybe get some suggestions. But I know some people do, and, and I think that because we're allowed to roster these minor leaguers ahead of time, that gives those listeners and readers and people who are using Tout as uh, some kind of advice system to really start looking for themselves at these players, whether or not they can take them earlier is is a separate matter. But when, for instance, uh, Kevin Biggio got drafted by, uh, by, got fabbed by Colton and Wolf, if I'm following the goings-on of these expert leagues, I might be tempted to say, I wonder why they did that. And then you look into it and you realize he's closer to the majors than, than you might have thought. And maybe you get a speculative, uh, a preemptive bid in, or maybe you can't. But when he comes up, you have the idea that maybe you need to bid a bit more on him because you really do want to get him based on the fact that somebody in Tout Wars thought he was worth doing this. Yeah, and you know the other piece too. You know, you mentioned like Fab preemptively. Something I, I write a Fab column every week at Baseball Prospectus, uh, along with Tim McCullough. Uh, people, I, I write about the AL only goings on. That's often a good barometer for mixed leagues. Like if, if you're in a, a even a deep mixed league, look at those AL only pickups. They're they're a nice barometer for what's coming next, particularly with pitchers. Um, if you see experts picking up players and being aggressive in particular on players. I mean, that's one thing about these minor leaguers you mentioned. Like, if they're going to make an impact, they're going to make an impact in almost every format if, if they hit the upper part of their projection. You know, unlike some of these other players in, in the expert leagues where, you know, like you said, if somebody picks up that second catcher in an NL or AL only, nine times out of ten, who cares? That's exactly right. Now, how do you think uh, owners should be scouting these nearly ready players who are still unclaimed for the preemptive bidding, assuming their league allows it or assuming they're just interested in that kind of thing, what should they be looking for insofar as a pitcher who's still on the farm and there's no, there's been no official call-up, but they could be on the way? Well, you know, there, there's a few things you want to look at. I, you know, one of the things you want to look at is, especially nowadays, you know, it used to be like, look at the team, look at the opportunity. More and more teams will give players these opportunities as, as needed or warranted. So I, I would, you want to look at that somewhat, you know, like someone like Kyle Tucker, who, who's been stuck in the minors for, for the Astros, it's, it's a little bit painful if, like me, you've had him on your you know, reserve all year. 
But, you know, that, that being said, you know, outside of an extreme situation like Houston, these players are going to get their, their due. So what you're really looking for, you're, you're looking for what I like to look at for hitters are, are good walk numbers, a good batting eye, you know, good, good approach. Um, you know, what, what I'm looking at for pitchers is I'm kind of looking still at some classic things, like still at a, a walk rate or, or, or command at least that's within a, a decent parameter that's acceptable. And, yeah, I look at the strikeouts because for the most part, you know, I know there's been a lot of talk about Andrew Kasher because he got traded and how he's succeeding, but really in fantasy, even if a pitcher can survive with like a 3-8, 3-9 you know, earned run average, if they're not striking out at least a batter inning in the minors, they, they often tend to struggle in the majors when they come up. I think a, an important part that you mentioned is the team context, and I, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned Houston because uh, at, at first glance, when we look at Houston, we think that's a loaded team. Anybody in that organization is going to be like stuck forever behind all of the talent that they have on there. But Houston's actually been quite aggressive about promoting guys very quickly. Uh, Jordan Alvarez being a good example. How many outfielders did Houston have before they called up Jordan Alvarez, and they called him up anyway because he was playing well, and they had options and they just said this is a good option and maybe we need to be more cognizant of teams who are being more aggressive in this regard yeah the other thing i'd recommend too you know i I don't know if baseball hq has this but baseball perspectives has fan graphs it's actually an article it's titled the same thing Uh, it's called the stash list like read those articles because you've got people who know you know not only fantasy but prospects really looking closely at the minor leagues and, and looking at you know who's ready or who's close to being ready and I, I, I use both those columns just as a quick shorthand because, you know, we talked about time and resources. I don't have time to look at 800 minor leaguers and, and kind of figure out who's next. And, you know, honestly, unless you're in a dynasty league, you don't even really need to be looking that far down. You're probably looking at down to double A in a redraft at the most. So, you know, use the resources that are out there. Like, don't, don't spend too much time trying to do your own research. And I will say at Baseball HQ, we have a column called The Watch List by Alec Dopp, and it's pretty much the same sort of thing. Guys who are close, guys we need to be watching. And here at Baseball HQ Radio, every week we have uh, Alex Becky does a, a, a commentary called Frequent Flyers, and these are guys you're going to take a flyer on. But this year so far, he's mentioned Jose Urquidy. He mentioned... Uh, um, Oscar Mercado, he mentioned Jordan Alvarez, a couple of other guys. So there are those kind of sources, and I'll close this out by suggesting that if you haven't visited MILB.com, you should, because they have a lot of leaderboards and those kind of things that you can you know, quickly say, oh, look at this guy's got a 1,300 OPS. That's a name I need to, to put down. Or I, the, here's a guy who's got a you know, 1.05 ERA and a 0.91 whip. Even in the minor leagues at AA or AAA, that's something. And a guy, for instance, Brandon McKay was on those lists, you know. And had I been smarter, I would have grabbed up Brandon McKay way ahead of time, but but I didn't. Uh, You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. And Mike, uh, MLB has apparently approved an effort by Tampa to explore the possibility of splitting their home dates in some fashion with the city of Montreal. Uh, I know you've talked about this idea on Twitter. What do you think? Well, I, I think it's a fun idea for, you know, the fans of Montreal. And, you know, we, we know it's a city that when a team was up there, it was, it was fun. You know, it was, it was a great place to at least watch a game on TV. I, I know there are passionate fans up there. I guess where I'm a little bit reluctant is with the logistics of it and how it will work. And, you know, additionally, what that will be like for that team. 
you know, one, one advantage of, of being home is that, you know, you're in the same place, you know, it's 81 games, you're used to the ballpark, used to the venue. This would put this franchise kind of in a, in a unique position. I'm not saying that they would necessarily fail, but I, I do wonder if they'd kind of be at, at a disadvantage. Now, I, I will say also, it's like everything else, that if it happens, if it goes through, I know it's just in the exploratory phase, as you mentioned, um, we'll get used to it. It's like everything else. You know, people complain about something when it's implemented, and then, you know, within a couple months, they're like, yeah, I mean, that's just the way it is. Yeah, I was wondering about it from a fantasy point of view because uh, in the run-up up here, I live near Toronto, and in the Kawhi Leonard sweepstakes that happened after the NBA Finals and the free agent period, a lot of the discussion about whether Leonard and guys like him of that caliber would be willing to come to Toronto has to do with the sheer hassle of crossing the border as part of your life. You know, these guys, they, they grind out a, a, a road trip, in uh, five cities and six nights kind of thing. And then they fly back and uh, they can't go home. They got to clear customs. And that's like 90 minutes of standing in lineups, even though they get preferential treatment. It's, it's a huge hassle. And word gets around in the league, you know, it's bad enough when you're a road team having to visit Toronto, but can you imagine having to be a, a, a home team guy who 41 times a year or, you know, however many trips that is, 10 times a year, you got to clear customs just to get to your to where you need to play. A, a lot of players don't like that, and I wonder if that would be a, a disincentive. Yeah, although, you know, something about baseball that, that is kind of intriguing is, you know, baseball has a significant population of players already who are not American born. And, you know, as we've seen, that's grown, you know, there, there's a larger Hispanic contingent. So, I mean, yes, it would add an additional hassle from the perspective that, you know, they're, they're now having to go to a second country. But I think that that hassle, as you pointed out, already exists. So it's probably not nearly the same as the NBA, where, yes, there are some foreign born players, but I, I believe a larger percentage are, are American born. Oh, for sure, yeah. The, the NBA is uh, do completely dominated by American players in a way that MLB is not so much anymore. That's an interesting thing. I hadn't thought of it because uh, I remember when the Expos were here that one of the things that a lot of their Hispanic players liked was they felt like they were more welcome in a city like Montreal, which was cosmopolitan and European in nature, much more than they felt uh, in some cases playing in, in parts of the United States where Hispanic people are not that popular. And uh, that might be a... a come on to attract more of those kind of guys. Yeah, and I, I even know, and I don't know what Montreal's like, but, you know, I remember reading this or hearing this about, like, African-American players in Toronto that, you know, this isn't to suggest that racism doesn't exist in Canada, but many kind of reported the same thing. They said there isn't nearly the same, you know, stigma or, or level of difficulty, to be a better way to put it, than there is in the United States. And, I mean, especially now, and I don't want to veer into politics, but, you know, given what the United States is like now, I mean, you're, you're kind of talking about two very different environments between the two nations. I suppose, uh, of course, the fact that most of these athletes are quite wealthy and they can insulate themselves to a certain degree from the uh, those those kinds of political realities. Uh, Mike, we'll be talking in detail in the second part of this call about your recent mid-season valuation article, but I did want to ask you about Raphael Devers and the fact that most of us just didn't see him coming this year. And in that article, you argued we really should have been paying closer attention. Why did we all miss Raphael Devers' big breakout? Well, you know, I think the big thing with Devers, you know, we, we kind of see this, but, you know, you, you mentioned Grayel before, you know, in his age. You know, so Raphael Devers is, is 22 years old. Um, you know, last year he was a 21-year-old playing his first full season in, in the big leagues, and he was playing through 
an injury for a while, and then he actually missed time. Uh, you know, he went from being shiny new toy to somebody everybody completely wrote off. Now, that's part of it. Uh, part of it is the way Devers looks. He's just one of those players from a scouting perspective. You know, we often hear that, you know, you hear the big body player, you know, somebody who's stocky or beefy. And, you know, I'm not using these terms pejoratively. These are terms that scouts actually use. So the combination of those two factors is what made people kind of look at Devers and, and write him off. Now, granted, you know, he, he's kind of, when I say we should have seen him coming, you know, I don't think anyone should have seen this coming. You know, he's on pace to be one of the best players in fantasy and even one of the better players in real baseball. But, you know, we probably should have seen like a 25-30 home run season with a 270-280 average as opposed to just looking at last year and saying, well, you know, the power will be there, but he can't hit for average. He's a bad on-base player. Um, he might get placed. You know, I think one thing that was silly about Devers, you know, some people were looking at Eduardo Nunez and going, wow, you know, Nunez could take some time away from Devers. I, that, that was never really realistic. So in a long-term keeper league or dynasty format, out of uh, Devers, Fernando, Tatis, or Ronald Acuna, who, who would be your pick? Man, I, I, I love Acuna. Uh, Acuna is somebody, and I, I heard this discussed elsewhere, I think it was on the ESPN podcast, you could make a case next year in a start over Dynasty League of, of taking Acuna over Mike Trout. Um, you know, if you're doing that, you're, you're not playing to win in the first year. You're, you're kind of playing the long game. Uh, you know, Acuna is a 21-year-old player who, you know, very quietly is putting together one of the, the best seasons in the National League or I'm saying the Major League. You know, the concern with Acuna was he wouldn't run, you know, because of where he was in the order. It's like, well, he's got 17 steals. Uh, you know, he looks like someone who could be a 35-25 player in an era where, where players aren't really running. And the thing about Acuna that I, I think is kind of, you know, scary is he could get a little bit better. You know, we, we had this discussion with Trout where it's like we kept talking about how he could get better, he could get better. And, you know, Trout has actually gotten a little bit better. I just think Acuna, where he is age-wise and on the developmental cycle, we could really see him move up. I mean, this is not a knock on Tatis or Devers. I, I just see Acuna as a potential 1-1 at some point. And he's, uh, he came up to the major leagues, and I think he was playing full-time, you said, at 20. And isn't there a, a, a belief, or has it been proved, I don't know, that like half of all major leaguers who are playing full-time by age 20 end up in the Hall of Fame? It's the potential. I forget what the percentages are, but yeah, the player who's up even as a regular everyday player at 20, even if they're not lighting up the world, their odds are significantly higher you know, than someone who comes up at like 24 or 25. Now, part of that obviously is accumulation. You know, if you're a good player, you know, we'll see this with Bryce Harper. You know, Bryce Harper's been all over the map. Uh, you know, Bryce Harper, if he, even if he has a good career the rest of the way, is going to make the Hall of Fame just because of that accumulation. But a large part of it is players who hold their own when they're 20 or 21 are likely or more likely to become superstars. Um, you know, if you think about it, if you put somebody in the majors at 20 who isn't ready, no matter how good their, their tools are, they're going to get the bat knocked out of their hands. But in Acuna's case, uh, he had a 917 OPS in his first full year at age 20, which must seem to indicate to most of us that he wasn't overmatched, and that that seems to augur extremely well. But mind you, uh, you can't really say the same about Devers, but Fernando Tatis has looked very, very good uh, as a young player in his first year. 
Yeah, Tatis is, is someone, you know, I think the concern with him, not for me, but elsewhere, I was more concerned that the, the Padres might mess around with his service time and, and bring him up later. Uh, the concern was the batting average. People were like, yeah, the power and speed are there, but, you know, based on the, the plate discipline and, and, you know, the swing tendencies, he's going to hit 230. Well, I mean, that hasn't happened. So, yeah, Tatis certainly is another player who I, I believe could be, you know, it's certainly going to be a first-rounder in the future. My feeling with Tatis, though, I, I can see more of an erratic, like, up-and-down kind of career where, where some seasons are just elite and some are, are very good but not quite at that level. Uh, that's probably my only tiny knock on Tatis for fantasy. I mean, they're, they're both going to be great. We're going to talk uh, with Nick and Jock a little later on with about some of these stories on the uh, Baseball HQ Radio Market Watch, but I'm curious what you think about some of the recent acquisitions and trades we've been hearing about. The Athletics traded for Homer Bailey in what they said was an attempt to get rotation help. Uh, how much help do you think Homer Bailey is going to give to the Oakland rotation, and how much fantasy value gets added from the move, if any? Well, I mean... Homer Bailey, so, you know, Homer Bailey's kind of interesting because the, the strikeouts are are back up a little bit. I mean, he's not striking batters out in the elite level, but in 2017 and 2018, that number was, you know, just above six per nine. It, it's a little bit above eight per nine now. Uh, the, the wins are obviously going to help him. The, the park is going to help Bailey. Uh, not that he was moving from, you know, an extreme hitter's park, uh, but I think it's just more the idea that you know, Oakland really, you know, tends to help out pitchers. I, I think I'd like him a little bit more if he was a fly ball pitcher, which he isn't, because that's where Oakland usually usually tends to help with those wide, you know, foul lanes and, you know, and, and the depth of the park. But that being said, I think Bailey will be solid. Now, the other side of this, I don't want to oversell Homer Bailey. Homer Bailey is, you know, kind of a four or a five in ale only. He's a streamer in mix. I still think that's what he is. You know, if, if you if you want to stream him for, for a nice matchup, you know, if he's got a, a good home matchup or you know, he's facing a weaker opponent, yeah, by all means, go ahead. That's how I've been using him in Tout Wars, which is an AL league. You know, I, I wouldn't add him, you know, as someone to use week in, week out, um, you know, unless you have the cushion and, you know, really can just play for those those wins and strikeouts and don't worry about your ratios. The White Sox got A.J. Reed off waivers from Houston. How much interest do you have in A.J. Reed? I mean, not much. Although he, you know, he did hit a home run. I think it was last night, um, if I re- remember my box score correctly. Yeah, he he had a home run in his his only at bat um, on Wednesday night. So my thing about Reed is, I really liked him as a prospect, and I kind of admit I was I was wrong on him. He's just one of those hitters. He, he certainly has the power, but whenever I've seen him, he's got kind of a long swing. Um, you know, doesn't really get to the ball quick quickly enough and it's something against pitching that you know faster pitching you know fastballs in the majors in the mid to upper 90s he's not generating nearly the the same torque that he would against the less experienced pitcher in the minors who's not getting up there so yeah you know if if you want to speculate on reason and only go right ahead i I just have that problem with him that he, he doesn't really make enough contact or hasn't made enough contact historically to make him worth it. And even this year in the minors, maybe it's just because he was frustrated and needed a change of scenery. He wasn't even hitting in AAA this year, like overall. So I, he's kind of fine as a speculative ad in a deep league, but I, I wouldn't expect much. And if something better comes along, don't be afraid to come. How about the trade sending Martin Maldonado to Chicago for Mike Montgomery? Any fantasy interest there in either direction? Uh, I mean, not really. <laughs> um, Montgomery is probably the more interesting name just because he's a pitcher and, you know, he's moving to the National League. 
Uh, he does have to get stretched out, though, which, which makes him kind of challenging as someone to add. You know, he's 30 years old. You know, it, it, it's been a while since he's been even a viable prospect. Um, and Maldonado, you know, I, I know part of the reason they picked him up was, you know, not only to be a serviceable backup, but because Wilson Contreras was kind of had a, a minor injury and they wanted to rest him a little bit more. But even if Maldonado plays, like, let's say three games a week, which I, I don't necessarily think is the you know, expectation, but let's say for some reason that's the arrangement, there, there just really isn't enough with the bat there. And I know he's got six home runs this year and, and could match the, or match the career high that he had in 2017 when he had 14 home runs. I just don't think there's enough with the bat there to make him more than a low-end ad and a two-catcher deep league. And finally, you mentioned uh, Baltimore starter Andrew Kashner moving to the Red Sox, and I saw you activated him in Tout Wars. Uh, what was your analysis of Kashner moving from the league's worst team to one of its better teams, and how much does that override the fact that Kashner has not been really good? Well, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head, which is he had a nice little streak recently, and I, I think if you rode the streak, the, the start he just had in Boston was, was a sign to say goodbye if you haven't already. Um, I activate him in Tau just because it's an AL only. It was a two-start week. I, I wanted to kind of leverage, uh, you know, two shots at wins against weaker opponents. And that's really where the play with Kasher is. Like, next week he's pitching against the Yankees. I, I'd be really surprised if, if I had him active in Tau uh, just because it's a superior opponent, and I don't even care where that game is. I don't want Kasher active against the Yankees. That's what the play is there. The, the strikeouts are, he has such a, a low strikeout rate. His, uh, his strikeout percentage of 14% over the last three seasons is, is the lowest among qualifiers, and it's not even really close. Uh, Martin Perez is, is second at 16%. So really, you're, you're looking at someone who just isn't going to strike batters out. And in today's game, like having a pitcher like that on your roster it's actually a detriment. Like you, you could be better off in a deeper league, you know, just going with a reliever with a high strikeout rate, hoping you luck into some of those wins. Mike, this has been really interesting so far. We'll take a break. We're going to do some news coverage and then we'll get you back. We'll talk about your uh, midway player values article at baseball prospectus. Stand by. Sounds good. Mike Gianella writes for Baseball Prospectus, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up next are Market Watch News Reports, player news from the National League and the American League with Nick and Jock. Next on Baseball HQ Radio. Picking up some dust. City feet, two and a half down. Great shadow. Four forward. Four forward. Drift into the right a little. Down and a half. 30 seconds. Forward just. Contact light. Okay, engine stop. APA at a descent. Boat control, both auto, decent engine command, override off. Engine arm off. 413 is in. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twink. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. We have Jock Thompson on deck with the American League. And leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend, Baseball HQ analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. 
Let's start in Colorado. Uh, earlier in the season, Brendan Rogers finally got his long-awaited call-up because there were injury issues in Colorado with Trevor Story and the, some other situations. Now he's out for the entire season. Uh, tore his labrum in his throwing shoulder, had to have surgery. Uh, Rob Carroll covers the Colorado Rockies for playing time today. What's going to go on with Brendan Rogers and the uh, Colorado lineup? Rogers was originally put on the 10-day IL on June 25th. But this last piece of news spells the end of his season for 2019. And it's difficult to say to what extent the shoulder issues played a part in his first major league experience. But he only had two doubles, no home runs, and 78 at-bats was a little bit of a disappointment. His final 224, 272, 250 line is reflective of strikeout issues and uh, 64% uh, contact rate, soft contact, heavy percent, 70 uh, hard contact index, 24px. Uh, at least he knows he'll, what he'll be up against when he returns in 2020, but certainly did not do what was hoped this season. Uh, for this year, Ryan McMahon will continue to man second base with some assistance from Garrett Hampson. Uh, McMahon has been a little bit inconsistent month to month, but uh, 840, 260 line in 258 at-bats is not bad, and that's pretty befitting of a young major leaguer trying to find finally finding his way uh, after an up-and-down kind of early career. Uh, Hampson's stolen base potential ceases, continues to tease us, but uh, he's only got a 262 on base percentage, and that's a bit of a downer. Yeah, that on base average, uh, 262. The problem, of course, when you see that is whether you're in an on base league or a batting average league, uh, is that you can't steal first. And, and uh, if your primary source of fantasy value is the ability to steal bases, you got to get on base. And uh, unfortunately, Garrett Hampson's not doing it, and he has been a disappointment in that regard for sure. Uh, in Los Angeles, Chris Taylor, the second baseman, had a forearm fracture, they called it. Uh, it was originally uh, announced as a wrist injury. Now they're saying it's a broken forearm. That's going to cost him four to six weeks. Uh, and, of course, they've got a lot of moving parts in Los Angeles with position versatility. So, Nick, what are they going to do to plug this particular gap? Well, LA's versatility makes this one complicated positionally, and a lot of names are moving around. Uh, at second base, Max Muncy and Enrique Hernandez will likely share duties while Taylor is out. Uh, Jock Peterson will move to first base. That gives Alex Verdugo and recently returned A.J. Pollock some outfield bumps in the outfield. Uh, Matt Beatty takes Taylor's 25-man roster spot, and he'll see occasional at-bats uh, both in the outfield and at first base. Uh, and actually, he played pretty well on, uh, on 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 Thursday night. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the, what the Dodgers do. A lot of moving around, a lot of decisions for the manager to make. Uh, really to be continued is all we can say on this one because it's hard to tell exactly how things will shift out. And it could be like a hidden benefit, couldn't it really, Nick? Uh, Los Angeles is being very uh, clever, I'll say, uh, sophisticated about their load management using the IL to to uh, rest their pitchers strategically. And maybe this is a chance that they can uh, apply the same thing to their uh, position players because they're going to be in the playoffs. It's uh, almost a dead certainty at this point. And, uh, you know, it's it's like in the NBA where teams know they're going to be in the playoffs, so they start resting their players. Maybe this gives Los Angeles a chance to do that, which could unfortunately have a negative impact on counting stats if the Dodgers realize, hey, you know, we don't need to put Justin Turner out there every day. Hey, you know what? We don't need to put Cody Bellinger out there every day. Let's give these guys some days off. And own, fantasy owners are going to say, oh, wait, a second i'd like to see him out there every day yeah right wait wait a minute don't uh, don't rest cody bellinger three days a week or something like that yeah it's certainly those kinds of things that happen there they've got plenty of players uh, they've got plenty of players who play well 
They can play matchups. Uh, a lot of things that can be going on in L.A. that may not be for the benefit of fantasy owners at this point. In St. Louis, Matt Carpenter, boy, this poor guy's having a terrible year, isn't he, with injuries? Uh, he's back on the I.L. He fouled a ball off his own right foot. The x-rays were negative, but he had some swelling. I guess he went on the I.L. What's going to happen in St. Louis with uh, Matt Carpenter back on the shelf? Yeah, his, his painful 2019 season, unfortunately, continues. Uh, this foot injury has him back on the I.L. He just returned from the I.L. when he got this one. Been, he's been a long way from the top-shelf infielder that owners have come to expect. Uh, XBA is a paltry 222. Power index of 92 is his lowest in five years. Uh, Tommy Edmond is being, getting plenty of at-bats with Carpenter's sideline and has been performing pretty well. He's 15 for 59, three homers, three steals. Uh, his active roster spot, Carpenter's active roster spot, goes to Edmundo Sosa, who was season, uh, St. Louis's number 15 prospect entering the season. Uh, but his presence on the list has something to do with the quality of St. Louis prospects. Uh, his rating is uh, only a 6B. Uh, we'll have to see how much playing time he actually gets, but may may turn out to be more of a bench bat. I'm curious about this Tommy Edmond. He came out uh, guns ablaze, and he's up to four home runs now, uh, three stolen bases. Batting average is 254. Another guy, Nick, who doesn't seem to understand the importance of drawing walks, just 3%, which means his on-base percentage is well below 300. And I think nowadays we're really looking, if you're a stolen base guy, to be, you know, 320, something like that. So he's, he's 40, 50 points off where he needs to be in on-base percentage. I know he's a young player and everything's only 24 and this is his first kick at the can, but uh, how likely is it, do you think, that a guy like uh, Tommy Edmund can figure things out and start drawing a few walks? He, he puts the ball in play. I'll give him credit for that. 80% contact rate is really good and he runs when he's on base, but doesn't he need to get on base more? Yeah, he sure does. I mean, you know, it, it helps a lot if, if you can get on base more. And and pitchers begin slowly to figure that out. You know, it doesn't take them long to realize this guy's not going to take a walk uh, so they can throw balls just off the plate and miss the strike zone. And then, of course, he stops, stops making good contact. There's a whole hassle of things that go together here. And so, uh, yeah, I think you're right. Unless he starts making taking more walks, uh, eventually we're going to see the batting average come down uh, and see the contact rate come down. Working against that, though, his hit rate so far this year is just 26%. We'd expect a guy with his speed, and he hits the ball hard. His hard contact index is way over 100, so he's well above league average. Uh, And that combination, a guy who can run and who hits the ball hard, should be batting a little higher than 254 if he gets his hit rate up to, you know, 30% or something like that, which is pretty normal. Uh, Probably a little higher would be normal for a guy with his skills. Gosh, we should be seeing maybe a 270 batting average, which would help alleviate that walk situation, at least as far as stolen base opportunities go. Yeah, it would indeed. I mean, that uh, that should help help a lot. So it'll be interesting to watch Tommy Edmond and see how he performs as he gets into his next uh, next 60 major league at bats, and certainly the 60 after that will begin to tell the real tale as to how well pitchers have adjusted to him. Uh, then it's his time to adjust back. That's the big thing, isn't it? Uh, they adjust, you adjust back, they adjust back, and that's the uh, the, the ballet of, uh, of baseball with these young players. Uh, one other uh, quick note about Tommy Edmond, 21% home run per fly ball rate. He only hits about, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, 30% or so of his balls are hit in the air, the ones that are in play, and, and 50% are on the ground. So anybody who's expecting that Tommy Edmond's going to be a genuine consistent source of home run power might be wanting to tampen those expectations a bit. 
Yeah, very definitely. But that kind of a uh, that kind of a low fly ball rate and that that twenty one percent home run fly rate is likely to come down. Atlanta made some news on Thursday. They activated outfielder Ender Inciarte from the injured list after two months and recalled a right-hander Kyle Wright from AAA. To make room on the roster, they optioned relief pitchers Bryce Wilson and Huascar Inoa back to AAA. Phil Hertz covered the story for Baseball HQ's playing time today. So let's start with Inciarte. How does his return affect the Atlanta outfield situation? When Inciardi got hurt, he was an everyday outfielder for Atlanta, but was really seemed to be struggling on the surface. Batting average is only 218, so uh, not certainly what the what you would expect, what the fantasy owners wanted. But uh, expected batting average a more robust 274. While he was out, Atlanta turned to rookie third baseman Austin Riley in the outfield, and he started like a house of fire. Hit 356 with seven home runs in May, but since then things have really slowed down for Riley. Uh, in that blazing May, he had 3.56 on-base percentage near 400, OPS uh, 11.43. That's May, June, 2.26 batting average, 2.87 on-base, 7.78 OPS. So far in July, we're at 159 batting average, 2.24 on-base, 5.20 OPS. And over those same uh, three months, his power index has gone 2.23, 141, 111. So from double league average to barely league average. Uh, so that drop-off from Riley could open the door for Inciardi to reclaim much of some of his playing time in left field, especially since his glove is a lot better than Riley's. Uh, right now, we're giving Inciardi 60% of the playing time in left field with uh, Ronald Acuna fixture in center, and Nick Markark is pretty solid in right. Uh, with Josh Donaldson producing a third base, which is Riley's natural position, I wouldn't be surprised to see Riley's playing time further reduced uh, and even see him get a breather back in AAA to get his feet under him at this point. Meanwhile, maybe even more importantly, what about the return of Kyle Wright? Now, they threw him right into the fire on Thursday night against the Red Hot Washington Nationals, and Wright got burned. Uh, two and two-thirds, seven earned runs, seven hits, three walks, wild pitch, three strikeouts. Gave up two hits to the opposing pitcher, Steven Strasburg, one of the home run. And, of course, uh, with those numbers, you wouldn't be surprised to know when pitching against Strasburg, he got the loss. Uh, Wright opened the season with three starts, including uh, another stinker against uh against the Mets, uh, six runs in three and two-thirds innings that triggered his demotion. So ERA was 7.07, XERA was only a run better. Uh, he, he's got some adjusting to do at this point. Uh, we had Bryce Wilson down for some starts. I presume that's going to be need uh, to be adjusted. Well, Wilson has been up and down this year, uh, up for only a few days through a PQS zero clunker against Milwaukee. We expect to be back before the season ends, but it's looking more and more like he's more valuable to owners in keeper leagues uh, than he's going to be the rest of this season. As for Anoa, he was up for only a couple of days with one disastrous appearance, giving up six earned runs and one inning. Well, now, Nick, uh, you're a National League guy, and you live down in that kind of Atlanta area, so I'm curious what you think about this. They're leading the National League East, but the Nationals are really charging. They're, the lead is down to five and a half games after the Thursday night loss, uh, and they have three more games this weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Atlanta, and the Nats, uh, and they're starting pitching. It just looks like it's falling apart, Nick. They're really uh, reeling out there in Atlanta. What should we expect the club to do about the starting pitching situation? Well, the top three look pretty set, but are less than worry-free. Michael Soroka has been uh, nails at 224, ERA at 105 whip. Uh, expected ERAs are run higher, but pitching very, very well. Dallas Keuchel has settled in despite a dom rate under 6 
uh, strikeouts per nine innings and a command ratio under two strikeouts per walk. So settling in, but but some worries perhaps for Keuchel at this point. Julio Teron has been serviceable, but again, despite some uh, cheesy-looking skills metrics. Uh, Kevin Gausman been on the IL with plantar fasciitis, uh, tentatively set to start Sunday in the finale against Washington. Uh, Max Fried is on the IL dealing with blisters, probably until at least the end of July. Uh, Mike, Mike Fultonewitz has been pretty awful, and Kyle Wright is certainly part of the future in Atlanta, but doesn't look like much help in the here and now. So with all those things going on, uh, we hear Atlanta mentioned as a, in the market for rotation help, and certainly if I were uh, the general manager of Atlanta, that would certainly be on the path uh, if you're trying to fend off a, a charging Washington team. Yeah, it there's a lot of trade speculation and 99% of it just doesn't ever pan out. And don't you think there's a, a chance at least, Nick, that they look at the at their rotation and say, we're going to muddle through somehow. And they've got a pretty decent bullpen. Maybe they could look at some opener bulk innings type situations where they, you know, they try to mix and match it rather than having to give up prospects to get a rental of a Madison Bumgarner or a, you know Mike Miner from Texas or one of those type of guys. Because the price most baseball teams are starting to realize in giving up prospects for these short-term returns, the price is just too high for the organization. Right, it may be, you know, and that's the thing that, that they, uh, a lot of the GMs are keeping in mind, and they don't want to look totally foolish uh, in a year from now, having given up a top prospect who's setting the league on fire uh, for a, a three-month rental. So. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what they decide to do. It's one of those situations where things could be uh, could be iffy. A lot of those deals, of course, will come down to the wire. With uh, at this point, uh, the teams that are that are are sellers seeing how much they can get, uh, but on the uh, eve of the trade deadline, may be willing to take a lot less. Uh, so it, it should be an interesting trade deadline, certainly. Yeah, it's a gigantic game of chicken, isn't it, where everybody's trying to out-bluff the next guy. It's almost like selling a house in a, in a buyer's market where, you know, you, you sit there and you don't sell and you don't sell and you wait for the offers to come in. And then all of a sudden, especially in a deadline situation, the deadline passes and you're sitting there holding on to a house you got no use for. Or you're in the case of a baseball team, you're holding on to an expiring contract of a pitcher and you're going to finish, you know, fourth or fifth in your division either way. Let, let me ask you this, though, Nick. I wonder if Atlanta feels fairly comfortable they're going to make the playoffs, but at some point does the uh, front office have to look at the entire National League and say, yeah, we're probably going to get into the playoffs. In fact, we predict we're probably going to win the National League East, but there's nobody out here who can beat the Dodgers. And if we can't get to the World Series, then we don't want to spend a lot of prospect uh, assets, a lot of prospect capital just to maybe be competitive in that first or second round series, only to get our behinds handed to us by the Dodgers. Well, you know, there certainly could be that, that mentality. And my, my, my own feeling would be if you have that mentality, then you're probably not going to win. Uh, I think you've got to get yourself in a situation where just making the playoffs isn't enough and begin to think, yes, we can win. Uh, and how are we going to do that? That's, that's the way, certainly I think you prefer to have your GM playing the game. Um, I, I've never been a fan of, uh, yes, we can make the playoffs six years in a row, but if we never get past the wild card round, is it worth anything? So uh, I think you've got to think a little bit higher than that. Uh, certainly that's where how Houston got to where they are, uh, and I think that's, uh, that's the kind of mentality uh, that you've got to be thinking at this point. 
Well, the general manager in Atlanta, Alex Anthopoulos, was the general manager up here in Toronto, and he was very aggressive when he was here. I'll say that for him. Uh, the the sell-off and all that kind of stuff happened after he left when they started really going cheap and not promoting their their young guys and, and uh, letting trading away or letting expire all their top player contracts. Uh, so if anybody's going to do it, Alex Anthopoulos would be a good bet. Uh, moving on, one of our favorite columns, Nick, that we like to talk about at BaseballHQ.com is The Speculator. That's where Ryan Bloomfield looks at you know things that aren't likely to happen but are interesting to think about. And this week, he looked at some comparisons using the Mayberry method. These are under-the-radar players whose skill sets match well-established players. So just for an example, let's start with two players whose Mayberry scores are numbered 3-5-4-5. That's an excellent foundation in batting average and stolen bases and enough power to maybe approach first-round production. One of those 3-5-4-5 players is Mookie Betts, which is a good example. Another one, though, a much less appreciated player, Nick Senzel of the Reds. Now, Mookie Betts is having certainly a down year by his own standards, but uh, as Derek Boyd wrote in a recent Fact Flux column, the underlying skills aren't there for, that far off from career norms, uh, and certainly we can expect a bit of a bounce back in the second half. Someone nearly matching those elite skills is Nick Senzel, a uh, former top 10 prospect who's doing a fir- his first go-round against Major League Pitching, uh, doing so-so, uh, doesn't make as much contact as Betts, uh, but at hard contact and XBA are right in line. Uh, they both have excellent raw speed, uh, 147 raw speed for Senzel, 149 for Betts. Uh, equally have plus raw power uh, through Mayberry's eyes. Senzel's biggest issue has been staying healthy, but certainly the, his Mayberry score is elite. Uh, Betts' production has followed suit in the past, and Senzel probably isn't far behind. You've got to remember with Senzel, uh, this guy is in his first year. He may not get there this year, but if you're in a keeper league, and, and I have a Mookie Betts comp. This is a guy you hang on to. He's doing pretty well, I, I, I think, this year. 806 OPS. He's got uh, eight home runs, nine stolen bases. Baseball HQ projections to be uh, 16 homers, 16 steals at the end, 275 batting average, which is certainly a good year. It's not Mookie Betts, but it's interesting to think about the upside here based on those skills. Yeah, it is indeed. When you think about this, is really his first year, first time, first exposure. Uh, and the skills certainly project him for more than that. Uh, the problem as a Senzel owner, the problem with Senzel has been uh, up and down. I mean, some weeks he's, he's fantastic, other weeks he, he doesn't, doesn't show at all. And so that's, it's, it's, a, it's a consistency issue right now with Senzel, and you certainly understand that with a young ball player. He's got good speed, 44% ground ball rate, uh, ordinarily something we don't like to see in a, in a home run type hitter, but a 34% fly ball rate uh, is uh, low but not you know, disqualifyingly low, and he hits a lot of line drives, so there's something to be said for Nick Senzel. I really like uh, this player a lot. Uh, Ryan Bloomfield also picked out a couple of players whose Mayberry scores are 2 three, five, five. These are elite batting average skills supplemented with uh, some power and some speed. Uh, the obvious choice here, DJ LeMahieu, who's having a fantastic year, but uh, a little less heralded, Alex Verdugo. Yeah, uh, LeMahieu came up in a, a lot of uh, first-half MVP discussions. That's his transition from Coors Field to Yankee Stadium uh, has gone much, much better than a lot of people expected. Uh, led to his best season of his career thus far. 330 batting average, 12 homers, 4 stolen bases, uh, and Verdugo's numbers and skills aren't that far behind. Uh, Verdugo has a near carbon copy profile to LeMahieu. Rarely strikes out. 89% contact for Verdugo, 84% for LeMahieu. Ground ball, uh, line drive, swing, drives an elite 300 plus XBA. 
Rodrigo has especially expressed more raw power. 104 expected power index with the Mayu's 89. Uh, and their three-speed scores support 10 stolen bases, which is not insignificant in today's game. Uh, with stolen bases going down and homers being uh, a lot more prolific. Uh, no left-hand, right-handed splits in an L.A. lineup that likes platoon. Uh, Verdugo's budding skill set at 23 says we, we'll see more of the Mayhew-type seasons going forward from Alex Verdugo. So definitely someone you want on a keeper league. Yeah, definitely. I think Alex Verdugo's got a really bright future. Uh, Nick, thanks a lot for helping us out. We'll catch up with you again next week. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League, Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the pod. Hey, PD. How you doing? Doing fine. Thank you very much. Uh, we had a trade in Kansas City. The Royals acquired Mike Montgomery f- from the Cubs and said he's going to slot into Homer Bailey's slot. He got traded. We'll talk about that in a second. Matt Dodge covered the story for playing time today at Baseball HQ. Uh, Man- Montgomery has pitched as a starter in the past. Not a lot of innings this season in any respect. Is he worth a look as a fantasy asset? Well, he missed about a month early uh, in the season with a strained lat, and then he was slotted uh, into the pen when he was with the Cubs. He hasn't made a start all season, and he, and he just hasn't pitched that well either, uh, as suggested by both uh, an ERA and an expected ERA. Above five, uh, six strikeouts per nine isn't very good. Neither is four walks per nine, along with those six strikeouts. And he normally has a, a plus ground ball rate, but that's way down. And his home runs are up. Uh, he, he did pitch well as a starter, as a swingman for the Cubs in 2017-2018, and some might use that as a benchmark here. But but right now, with uh, in, with less positive team context, uh, going from the Cubs to the Royals is a bit of a letdown. And the way he's pitching now, I'd pass. I, I just don't see nothing to be encouraged here. Yeah, I don't see anything either, Jock, to tell you the truth. And uh, the dwindling strikeout rate and rising walk rate have combined to create a what we call a command ratio, strikeout to walk rate, it's barely 1.5. And usually what we're looking for in modern baseball is 2.5 from starters. And that's uh, a way too many walks and way too few strikeouts. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mike Montgomery, he's, he's going to get an opportunity. And I, and I know that pitching is scarce for everybody, regardless of your league's depth, but, uh, boy, I don't know. I would, I would stay away from this one right now. And, uh, Matt Dodge looked at, uh, Mike Montgomery's rates, as a starter versus a reliever, and he actually gives up fewer walks when he's a starter. Uh, it's still not great at 3.1, but he gives up more home runs when he's a starter. So it's pick your poison, and either way, you get poisoned. Uh, while we're talking about Kansas City and Homer Bailey, let's discuss his move to the Oakland rotation. Uh, so far, so good. In his first start, he allowed two runs and got a win against uh, Seattle. Rod Truesdell touched on this move in playing time today. What does Oakland see in Homer Bailey, and is he worth a fantasy pickup because of the team change. Well, the A's have obviously taken a hit with Frankie Montas uh, being suspended and uh, and some of their other starters uh, slow to return from injury, Sean Manaya and, and, and a few of the rookies. Bailey's actually been pretty decent, at least at the bottom line, over his last eight starts uh, since the beginning of June. Uh, a sub 3.5 ERA, four wins, primarily due to his ability to tamp down the home runs during that period. His expected ERA is a run higher, though, and while that expansive foul ground in Oakland might mitigate some of his declining dominance, uh, 
That's a really tough division offensively with the worst lineup of the bunch being Seattle. That's who he beat in his first start uh, for Oakland. I'd sure take Bailey right now over someone like Montgomery, but I'd still be a little hesitant when he has to pitch against the likes of Houston, Los Angeles, uh, the Angels, and uh, and Texas. If you look at team offenses, those three clubs are all in the in the in the top ten in MLB scoring right now. Yeah, and even Seattle hits a lot of home runs, which is uh, you know in, in a, any kind of short run is is a pathway to a disastrous start to you know go into Seattle you think you're going to do okay because they're not that offensively excellent but they could pop four home runs on you just as easy as not and and right away you got a terrible start for the week uh, yeah I, I, I agree with you about Homer Bailey I just don't think the park it does enough to offset what is generally a lack of skill and a tough tough divisional environment uh, we had a bit of a surprise jock in Texas. The Rangers activated Hunter Pence from the IL, and I don't think that part of it was a surprise. But what did catch a lot of people kind of flat-footed was Willie Calhoun being sent back to AAA. Uh, Calhoun himself was gobsmacked. He said he was literally speechless at the demotion and didn't know what to do except kind of begrudgingly say, I guess I go back to Nashville and try to help the team win and, and do well and get back here. And he had hit pretty well after his earlier call-up, though he dropped off recently. What's going on here with Texas and Willie Calhoun? He seemed to be jerking him around for years now. Well, I, yeah, I don't know about jerking him around. I would I would take issue a little bit with that and that Willie Calhoun really didn't deserve a promotion until he came back in mid-May. Um, it was the first time he'd been hitting in the minors for over a year. Um, he, he returned with a bang, like you like you mentioned in mid-May, but it, but he he'd really fallen off recently. He was six for thirty-nine with just a couple of walks, and the strikeouts were beginning to pile up. Um, I, I think to some degree, right now, the Rangers have become hostage to their own success at uh, reclamation projects. They had Hunter Pence; they had to slide into the roster. Danny Santana has been hitting the ball really hard this year. Both have made substantial contributions to the offense to date and, and still are. Uh, and, and while the Rangers may be hanging around the periphery of the wild card race, they're not going to compete this year. My guess is that they want to keep their options open, at least for the final weeks of the trade deadline, in hopes that maybe one of these names might be an additional trade chip that'll get a deal done and send some talent uh, that can help them in the future, and maybe send Calhoun back for a refresher. My guess is that he's going to be back sometime in August. I, I was really surprised he made such a big deal of this. I just don't think this move is indicative of anything other than a short-term play. Uh, I I have to admit, though, I've watched Calhoun play some outfield recently, and he really is as bad as I remember him to be there. He just hasn't improved at all. Yeah, uh, DH, if ever there was one. uh, There there also is perhaps the idea, one of the reasons that they did what they did is Calhoun had options. Uh, That is, minor league options left, and Santana and Pence, being much more established veterans, didn't. And sometimes when you look at the situation as a front office, you have to go... Here's somebody we can send to the minors without exposing him to waivers, without fear of losing him. And here's two guys we can't do that for, so the guy who has options goes. Oh, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the the, the situation would have been completely different if uh, if Calhoun didn't have options, but he does. And he's back in AAA, at least for now. He's going to be up later on again. So, you know, to me, kind of a kind of a minor thing. 
Well, I spent half my fab on him in my Tout Wars League, so from your lips to God's ear. <laughs> Back to pitching the Houston rotation. Jock, we've been talking about this, it seems, every other show all year. You wrote about their problems in your latest Playing Time Tomorrow coverage of the AL West at Baseball HQ. The Astros have never really resolved the openings that were created when Colin McHugh hit the IL. He's now back, but as a reliever, Brad Peacock's now on the IL, and his stint has been extended. He's got some shoulder issues, no return date in sight. And when these rotation slots have come up recently, the replacements that they've tried have also really struggled. And in that process, the Astros' seemingly insurmountable lead over Oakland looks a lot more surmountable. They're just five and a half games up. What is Houston going to do to fix this rotation? Well, last year they used Framber Valdez as a part-time starter, and he was pretty successful with two pitches. He, he threw a lot of ground balls. He kept his ERA below three. And and they started out trying to do the same thing this year, and it, and it worked for a couple of games. But his last four games, he's been terrible. He's given up uh, uh, 11, 11 walks and 19 runs over 11 innings uh, during his last four appearances, all of which have either been been starts or bulk appearances behind an opener. So right now he's he's kind of earned himself a timeout i think in triple a they're gonna they're gonna try rogelio armenteros in the same uh, in the same role josh james he got a start the other night just as an opener he actually did pretty well in a couple innings they're really making this up as they go along but but they don't have a a, a an honest to god starter right now and their bullpen is getting fairly taxed uh, they're one of these clubs i think that uh if if you put a gun to my head, I would say the Astros are the most likely club to play to trade a big name prospect like uh, Kyle Tucker, for instance, or even Forrest Whitley uh, for rotation help. They're they they're obviously they're 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 an odds on favorite to go into the playoffs, even though their lead has shrunk uh, over Oakland. Um, they really need uh, a fourth starting pitcher uh, before the postseason begins. In the Tout Wars American League league that I play in, there was actually a bidding war. A week before, Jose Urquidy got called up, and uh, somebody outbid me by a dollar, I think, and and got him. What about his chances of playing a significant role in the second half? In his first two starts, he struck out a lot of hitters. His strikeout to walk ratio was very good. I think it was eight to one over uh, over six the six innings that he pitched. Now he gave up seven runs, and it's and it's not fair to judge somebody after two starts on that, particularly since one of the starts was in Coors Field. I watched him one of those starts, uh, the second one, and he was uh, he was really all over the plate. I mean, he was he, command was a problem. The strikes he was throwing were right down the middle, and the Angels just just crushed him. Uh, I think he's going to get more opportunity as well. Um, he's going to have to sharpen up his command to be successful at the major league level, but he might be as good a bet as any to uh, to to win some innings if he can pitch well. And you think Whitley is just a, a non a non starter? You f- forgive the expression, as far as solving some of the problems. And he he obviously has the talent, but he sure hasn't shown it this year. His ERA is uh, is over twelve, over twenty six innings. He's he's spent about a month and a half on the on the eye uh, injured list with shoulder fatigue. He um he came back to rehab his first start. I think he got ripped for three runs in an inning and a third, and this was in rookie league ball. So I just don't think you can rely. Now, um, my guess is he he might even be a trade chip. Well, he'd be a terrific trade chip because somebody who's got time on their side to let him develop into the pitcher that we probably think he's going to be. Uh, they they don't need it to happen right now the way Houston does. Uh, finally, Jock in Boston, uh, Nathan Eovaldi's 
set to come off the injured list this weekend. He had an elbow problem, and according to a lot of reports, they expect him to eventually take over as the closer, or at least in a very high leverage position at the back of the bullpen. It's been a committee. They've had very little luck. Uh, they sent Ryan Brazier down the other day. They've been mixing and matching and not really enjoying a lot of success. Uh, Matt Dodge wrote about all of this in Playing Time Today at BaseballHQ.com. What is going to go on in that Boston bullpen with Eovaldi on the way back? Well, I think like Matt says, the uh, the hope here is to try to catch uh, the the. 2018 postseason lightning in a bottle. Uh, Ivaldi uh, pitched nine innings and struck out seven hitters. Walked only one as a reliever. He was he was he was really good uh, in the postseason. And like you said, the uh, the Boston pen has been a rotating mess. It's been one of their biggest problems. Uh, Brandon Workman has been pretty effective recently. The past month, uh, 2.61 ERA. Uh, um, Matt Barnes. Uh, um, He's, he's been intermittently effective. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what they do. Um, Ivaldi's track record as a starter this year hasn't been very good, um, uh, six, 6.0 ERA. But obviously, he spent some time on the DL uh, with, uh, after, uh, with elbow surgery. And um, um, now, um, maybe, maybe in short bursts, he can give the Red Sox what they need out of the pen. It seems to me that what they want is somebody to just solidify that whole thing so they can get back into the roles. Uh, I know that a lot of teams, and rightly in my opinion, are trying to match the leverage situation to the best pitcher available, but uh, I think Boston's been trying that, and it really hasn't been working. Part of the problem, I thought, might have been they kept putting Matt Barnes in the toughest situation day after day after day, and even uh, the team said uh, after a while, you know, we're wearing this guy out because he never gets an easy inning. He's always pitching in a very, very high leverage situation against the other team's best hitters. Uh, even at that, he's at a 177 leverage index over the same time as uh, Brandon Workman's taken over as, as a as a high leverage reliever at 236 leverage index. And Heath Hembry just came off the IL and he picked up a save in his second appearance. So it looks like they're they're still trying this mixing and matching. But do you get the feeling that they would just as soon have a situation like Kansas City had a few years ago? You get the seventh, you get the eighth, you get the ninth, and let's just go win games. Yeah, I and 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 while I agree with you that that relievers should be used and the best relievers should be used in high leverage situations, there is there is such a thing for uh, to be said for there is a, something to be said for continuity and uh, and roles. Uh, Matt Barnes, you bring up, he's a he's a really interesting guy. I'm looking at his expected ERA right now, two point four zero. His ERA is two runs higher, and maybe it's because of the reasons you said. He doesn't get any easy innings, particularly in that division. Um, but for a reliever to his, for his ERA to be two runs over his expected ERA, that doesn't very happen very often. No, it doesn't. And before I let you go, uh, with the trade deadline starting to loom, uh, you're an Angels guy. You live in the Anaheim area. And what do you think the Angels are going to do when they look at the standings, they look at their situation, they look at their opportunities? Are they going to be buyers or sellers, or is it still too early to say? Well, I I. I I don't think this year is the biggest priority. I think if they trade for for um, a pitching help, which is what they need, obviously, um, they're going to look for cost-controlled um, guys or or con- at least contract-controlled uh, through 2020, 2021. They're looking for long-term players. They are not just looking for a rental. So um, I wouldn't expect to be involved in any kind of a, of a rental going forward here. 
All right, Chuck, thanks a million for helping us out. Catch up with you again next week. Okay, PD. Chuck Thompson is Baseball HQ's Director of News and Analysis and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, it'll be part two of our feature expert interview with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. But right now it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Facts and Flukes, analyst Brian Rudd validates the performances of five national leaguers, including Joe Musgrove and Anthony Rendon. In the Daily Call-Ups report, Baseball HQ scouting analysts review some recently called-up prospects, including San Diego right-hander Andres Munoz, Kansas City outfielder Bubba Starling, and Angels outfielder Michael Hermosillo, as well as all the prospect names you need to know. And in the Bullpen Buyer's Guide, columnist Doug Dennis reviews the teams most likely to be selling their top relievers, and the relievers most likely to step up and benefit when they're gone. And those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sample of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starting pitchers, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis by former big league GM Brad Coleman in the Market Pulse and injury analysis in the Big Hurt. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day. We have daily dashboards and pitcher matchup planners and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. Expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. Mike, welcome back. I'm glad to be back. You mentioned uh, that you write regularly at Baseball Prospectus, and you recently had an article looking at year-to-date values of all the players, uh, hitters and pitchers, separated into the two leagues. Uh, Before we talk about specific players, how do you do your dollar valuations? Um, so the dollar valuations, I know you've asked this before and I've been on, they're, they're, they're an SGP model, so they're, they're based on values to date. So they're, they're this year's formulas. I, I don't take last year's formulas and plug them in. I think that's particularly important in the, con, you know, the offensive context where things change so much from season to season. And I didn't publish it, but as an exercise, you know, if, you go out and, you know, if you go out and look at last year's formulas and you know, tried to plug them into this year's values, you'd have some pretty extreme-looking players at the top, and I don't feel like that's an accurate reflection. Um, so there is an adjustment made. It's not a pure scarcity formula. So you know, someone who's stealing, someone like um, Mondesi, who has a bunch of steals, who would be worth like you know, well into the 40s using a scarcity model, he does kind of get pared down a little bit, although he still was the, the third-best player in the American League when I ran these. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's really the basic high-level overview of what it is. Um, it's really, you know, if you're using um, regression or if you're using Z-scores, this isn't that. I mean, this is a separate, more classic SGP model. And you've been doing this for a while now. The baseball environment changes over time, as you said, and especially, uh, as all of us know, with home runs and strikeouts over the last few seasons. What changes have you seen in how the categories have changed, particularly in what it takes for a player to earn a standings gain point in the categories that might be different from, say, five, ten years ago? Well, you know, the big thing that's obvious is, is stolen bases. So 
stolen bases now, like you, you really have an opportunity to, you know, gain in a category quite easily. Like some, someone a few years ago with eight to 10 steals overall, you would look at a player like that and be like, well, you know, it's, it's nice. It helps, you know, it's not a zero to their value. You know, now a player that does that can, can really be, be boosted up. Um, the, the other change that, you know, I've, I've seen that, that really isn't discussed as much as it should be, like we all talk about home runs, and I kind of mentioned this with Cashner, the strikeouts. Um, you know, it used to be a, a pitcher who, who had a ton of strikeouts, like someone, you know, I think I use this example on my valuation podcast at Baseball Perspectives. So eight years ago, maybe it was longer, it was the year that, um, I think it was longer, it was the year Zach Greinke won the Cy Young Award. Uh, for the Royals, um, off the top of your head, do you remember that year? Maybe it was 2009, uh, so maybe it was 10 That sounds right, 2009, 10, yeah. It was, it was 10 years ago. So that year, Greinke and, and Justin Verlander were, were the best pitchers in, in the American League, and you know there was just all all sorts of volume with them. You know, Verlander pitched 240 innings, Greinke pitched 229. Um, I went back, they, they both earned in the 40s that year. Uh, I went back and ran their values, and this is in the 2018 formula. I haven't done it this year. I, I believe that uh, Verlander was a $35 pitcher and Greinke was a 27 or $28 pitcher using this year's formulas. Uh, that's really what the strikeouts do. I mean, they, they put they, – and I think it was the opposite. I just think Greinke's ERA was a little, worth a little bit more. But the point being is that the, the strikeout – increase has really changed how pitchers are valued. So if you've got a pitcher striking out eight per nine, uh, particularly in a non-only league, it really influences how that pitcher is valued and, you know, really makes you think like, well, I need to make sure I get that strikeout volume. It's just a very important thing. It's a category that you don't want to get too cute and, and fall behind with. You also wrote in the article at Baseball Prospectus about the top 10 players in each category, that is, both leagues separate and hitters and pitchers. And what surprised me in both of the leagues was how few of the top hitters would have been top rounders in the run-up to this season. How usual is it that there's that disconnect? Um, it happens. Um, it, it really kind of depends on the season, and, and kind of the player pool, there isn't, what I've noticed about this is, as you said, I've done this for a few years. This isn't constant, so it, it's not really a, a trend from, from one season to the next. Uh, I would say for this year, it, it's more than like average. So, yes, that is a little bit surprising. The hitters who were in the top of the auction salary range, Mike, have almost all been unprofitable. They've been money losers. Uh, of the 25 hitters who had auction salaries over $30 in your lists, only five were profitable. We had Christian Yelich and Cody Bellinger, of course, who are killing it, and all four players with average auction salaries over 40 were big losers. Trout, Betts, Judge, Ramirez. Overall, nobody with a salary over 40 was profitable. Only about 25% of guys from 20 to $39 were profitable. But more than half the hitters under $20 were profitable. And I'm getting these numbers from your spreadsheets that you made available in the article. Is there a lesson here for us about stars and scrubs for hitters? Well, so not really. So one, there's a couple things. One thing to keep in mind, you know, because these are auction values, like we're going to miss on the people we pay the most for. We're going to miss more commonly than we hit. Like, so if, if you pay, for example, $45 for Mike Trout and he's earned 38, which is where he is now, I, I think that's a success in its way. Like it, it's not a gain, you know, you're losing, you know, auction value. But what you're paying for, for Trout is you're locking in a, a floor of $35 worth of stats. 
Um, that, that, that's, that's the Mike Trout proposition. Um, what I would say, though, and what I find kind of interesting is the difference between the AL and the NL. So you, you look at the top ten in the, you know, in, the a, in the NL, and it's still a pretty successful you know, group of hitters. Yes, there, there's some losses there, but you're looking at hitters for the most part, like, you know, besides Yelich and Bellinger, like Cunha, you know, like, like Freeman, you know, like Trevor Story, where they've all either turned to mild profit or broken even. The AL, there's so many hitters, like Giancarlo Stanton, obviously, because the injury, so many hitters who just have, have turned a loss. And that top 10, I think they're earning, on average, like in the low 20s. That's historically low. And what I find intriguing about that, I thought the, it would be the opposite. I thought with so many AL teams tanking that the top hitters would be worth more just because the draft pool would be weaker. But that hasn't been the case at all. And, and to me, that's been the surprise. Now, Mookie Betts is, uh, is another example of a guy who's pretty much a consensus uh, number two pick in, in a lot of leagues. Uh, I saw a few that were brave enough to take Christian Yelich and bully for them. But, uh, you know, his salary average that you used was close to 50 bucks. He's barely, uh, he's not even at 30 in value at the time you wrote. Uh, it, it, this seems to be an indication to me that it's not as certain as we think. And, and for that reason, that's what makes me wonder, should we be just ignoring the Mookie Betzes and even Mike Trouts of the world in favor of looking into that $20 tier where the risk is lower and the potential for profit is, uh, is at least as good and probably better. So in theory, yes. Um, and, and, you know, you, you saw in towers that I did this, like I, I spent 35 on Jose Altuve who didn't work out. But for the most part, beyond that, I, I kind of spread the wealth and, and had a balanced roster. The challenge with the $20 range is that, so if you wait on the $30 range and, and you decide I'm not going to buy these players, I'm only going to buy one if they really fall in, and you go to the next tier, you know, we, we saw this in Tout Wars where the next tier was really competitive too. Like it, it wasn't a, a group of players where you could be like, oh, like, you know, there's, there's going to be bargains here. I'm, you know, J- Jonathan Biar, you know, he went for 28 and tout. Um, that's fine, but it's not a price where you're like, oh, okay, he's a tremendous profit. You know, same thing with Glaber Torres. You know, he went for 25. Um, you know, Eddie Rosario went for 25. I'm kind of looking at these mid-20s players, and, and yes, they, they were certainly solid, and they're earning their keep. But they're also not players, you know, outside of someone like Mondesi, who, you know, had a lot of risk tied into him, where there's necessarily a, a big profit there either. You're more kind of holding your own with those types of players. And the funny thing is, uh, Glaber Torres and VR, uh, I drafted both those guys, or I auctioned both those guys in Fab, in, uh, I'm sorry, in Telt Wars, and uh, they've really been my most successful players, because I, 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 paid 40 plus for Jose Ramirez. I paid 30 plus for Andrew Benintendi. And it's those guys who are killing me. And maybe this is one of those situations, Mike, where, you know, a recency bias, I just look at the disaster that unfolds on, in this league under this circumstance. And it makes me think I need to change my whole approach. Whereas had I picked two different $30 players uh, or $40 players, I, I might've been much happier. Right. I mean, if you, you know, you bought, for example, Merrifield and Lindor, you know, they're, they're not necessarily lighting up the world. They're not turning a profit, but they're, you know, Merrifield's actually slightly ahead. And Lindor, even with the injury at the end of the year, is slightly behind. You'd have a baseline where you hadn't wasted any of your, your play money, but you, you'd still be better off. 
Your worksheets showed that drafted players amassed almost exactly three times as many home runs as stolen bases. It was weird how close it was, 3,043 to 1012. So uh, three times would have been 30-36, so it's within seven. And the stolen bases are really much more concentrated than ever as well. We only had 12 hitters at 15 stolen bases or more, but we had 71 hitters with 15 home runs or more. What do you think this means? And you've touched on this already, but how ought we to be targeting stolen bases versus home runs as we look forward? Well, you do want to make sure that you, you know, an obvious thing to say, you do want to make sure you have stolen bases on your team. Uh, the one thing that you want to do, and I think be careful about, especially because there's so much power, is to avoid the Billy Hamiltons of the world, like a player where if he doesn't run and doesn't produce, even in an only, and we kind of have seen this this year with him, you're just wasting a slot. Um, so that, that's kind of the other side of this. The players are running less. So as a result, you know, someone like Hamilton, a team just isn't going to leave him out there to steal 50 bases and at the top of the order. And that's kind of what you need for a player like Hamilton to be worth the price tag. Um, I actually like what I did in AL Tout this year. I, I spread the wealth and bought players like Kevin Kiermaier, like Kevin Pillar, uh, like Tim Anderson. Um, as I said before, I know these are bad on-base players. But in terms of stolen bases, I wasn't relying on one player. I was relying on a bunch of players who were offering a little bit. Like even someone like Domingo Santana with his six stolen bases who could get to double digits, there's value, as I said before, in having those 10 steals you know, from a player like that who's also, by the way, really good elsewhere, you know, as opposed to someone you know, like, say, you know, and he's a bad example because he's been hurt. I'm trying to find you know, somebody else. Um, you know, someone like uh, Matt Olson or or Chris Davis, where it's like, yeah, those players, they haven't done nothing. Um, you know, I know Davis has kind of been banged up too, but with the zero steals, you're just getting nothing out of the player from that slot. So it's not just targeting the high steal player. It's making sure you try to get a player who's going to offer you something, hopefully, in that category, even if they're not going to steal 30 or 40. Yeah, I grabbed uh, Avisail Garcia of uh, Tampa in a couple of leagues, including Tout. I think I paid only $7 for him, which turned out to be really good. And the main reason that I wanted him on my roster in both cases, in mixed and in, in only, is... Of course, I'm expecting a certain level of home runs, maybe 20, you know, mid-20s. But there's a possibility there that I'm going to get maybe 15, 16 stolen bases out of it, and that really tips the balance in his favor. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That, that, that's such a big thing. You also looked at what last season's first half top 10 hitters did in the second half, and seven out of the 10 maintained their good first half performance. How confident should we be that 70% of this season's or any season's top first half hitters will maintain the momentum through the second? Well, and again, you know, this is sort of a, a difficult like you know thing to, to project, so a lot of it depends more on the player than the trend line. I, I, I think it's more common for like six, five or six players to, to do it. The other thing that makes this tough is the way that the ball is and the way that statistics are, are kind of amped up. It does make it likely, you know, you, you know, we kind of talk about the home run curse. You know, Pete Alonso wasn't going to hit 30 home runs in the second half, not because of the home run curse, but because of regression to the mean. The other side of that, you know, the player who jumped out at me was Christian Yelich. Christian Yelich last year wasn't even in the top 10 for the National League, and he finished number one. Uh, there's probably going to be one or two players like that, even if they're not the extreme that Yelich was, who we don't see right now in the top 10 who are going to shoot up onto that list. And that's kind of more what I'm looking at. 
I, I think the way the ball is right now leads to more of these outliers. Conversely, Mike, what sense did you get to, either through long experience or by doing the work that you did on your article, what sense did you get about how likely hitters having bad first halves are going to maintain that momentum into the second half? Or is there a greater degree of hope for a Jose Ramirez? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an individual case. And in Ramirez's case, he's floundered now going back into last year. So it, it, it's really difficult to, you know, kind of make that assessment. What I do find, though, for hitters, there, there's kind of a certain level. Like if hitters are flailing so much for, for such a long period and there's not an injury, whether we're aware of it or not, there's kind of a limit to what they're going to do. Like even if they bounce back, it's going to be more of a dead cat bounce. And I, I feel like with someone like Ramirez, and he, he's a weird case because he steals bases, but if you haven't sold by now, you're probably not going to be able to sell and you should just kind of hang on. Um, I, I, I sort of have a wariness for the most part of a hitter once they've been doing it for this long and, and things have kind of stabilized of, of them bouncing back. Let's switch over to the pitchers. And again, we see it was tough to make a profit on the high salary guys. Only Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole of guys bought for an average of more than $30 turned profits. And the average of the other six $30 pitchers was a $17 loss. We've been hearing preseason advice for the last couple of seasons from touts that we should be spending more aggressively on those ace starters. So I guess the natural question here for you, Mike, is do we need to reconsider that advice about whether to target those ace starters for big dollars and big draft picks? Well, you know, I I mentioned this before in my, um, I think my tout recap before the season of, of my auction the answer is somewhere in the middle. It, it, it makes some sense to go after these pitchers, and you know, primarily not even so much for whether they're they're good or bad, but for the volume. Um, you know, outside of Corey Kluber, what jumps out a bit at me of, of, with most of the expensive starters is they are delivering on the innings that we needed from them. And you know, regardless of everything else, like you know, if you look at someone like Chris Sale, for example, yes, uh, Chris Sale's a, a disappointment in ERA, but you know, Chris Sale also has 153 strikeouts with with a stellar whip. I know the wins aren't there, but it, it, it's kind of that idea that you're still getting that volume in strikeouts from an ace that you were looking for. You know, Trevor Bauer is another example. I think Bauer, because of the ERA, some people look at it as a disappointment. Um, and I look at him like, well, he's only losing a little money in fantasy, but the really important takeaway for me is you're getting that volume. So, yeah, you want to be careful, I think especially in draft leagues. I, I saw in one of the main events, like people were really going you know, over, over the edge and taking starting pitchers way early, in my opinion. That being said, you do still want to pay a premium for starters just because of that volume, even if they're not going to necessarily deliver on the same stats of last year. Like, I know we're looking at the AL, but, like, is anybody, I know he hasn't lived up to what he did last year, but anyone who drafted Jacob DeGrom, are they really that disappointed? Like, yeah, he hasn't earned his keep, but I still think he's delivered enough to make him a decent proposition where he didn't sink your season necessarily. The pitchers in the 10 to $29 salary range looking at the spreadsheet, were about break-even, and a half of them made a profit, half of them made a loss. The average return was around minus $3, so that's well within the range of 
what variability we'd expect. But 60% of the single-digit salary pitchers on your spreadsheet were profit makers. And all but one of the top 25 profit makers were single-digit guys like uh, Lucas Giolito, Mike Soroka, Brandon Woodruff, or even undrafted guys like John Means, the surprise story of the year, and even Kashner. Uh, This feels like something we see every year. How should we be looking at these mid-salary and especially low-salary pitchers as we make our draft plans in the future? So the funny thing about the mid-salary pitchers is is typically these pitchers, and I've documented this before, these are the ones who hurt us. Like These are the ones who, and it's it's usually like the 13 to 19 range. Like These are the ones who really burn us. Like You pay like almost, almost 20 for a pitcher and they bring back zero. That, that's killer. Um, so this to me is a little bit unusual that so many of these pitchers have been as successful or at least not nearly as unsuccessful as they are historically. Although it's funny, there, there is a band here um, starting with Kikuchi. I know it's relievers like going down to Alvarado where, yes, that is kind of more of what I would expect to see. You know, Nathan Eovaldi is another one. You know, he, that, that's kind of more of what I'd expect to see from a, a pitcher in this range. Um, the, the thing about the single-digit pitchers, I think we kind of are where we always are. This is always like throwing darts to the board. There, there's always pitchers in this bucket. Uh, you know, Lucas Giolito, should he have gone for more? Yeah, probably. You know, he probably should have gone for a couple more bucks based on his pedigree and his history, et cetera. But there's a reason we don't pay these pitchers that much. Like, they're, they're very difficult to see coming. Like, when I look at this, this list, it's really scattershot. Like someone like Mike Myers, another example, I, I think he should have gone for more. He showed some signs last year. That being said, nobody should have expected, a, you know, through the All-Star break, a, a near $30 pace season for him. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about when I looked at the list, too, is that in reality, we should have been willing to spend, you know, 15 to $20 on Mike Miner or, or uh, Lucas Giolito. We still would have made money. We would have anchored down our staffs and all this kind of thing. Shane Bieber, Luis Castillo, same kind of thing. They've, they're around uh, $30 value year to date. So anything less than that really would have been a, a legitimate bid. But at the time, you know, it's like, the only way you can justify it is 2020 hindsight, because at the time, it just made no sense to make any kind of really super aggressive bid. And in fact, the average salary bid in the experts leagues on Bieber and Castillo was around 15 bucks. And I think that was pretty reasonable. And you have to be happy that you get the profit, but you can't look back at it, I don't think, and say, you know, next year, I'm going to try to figure out who Shane Bieber, who next year's Shane Bieber or Castillo is going to be and make my $30 bid. Because as you said, you're basically throwing darts and that's a really dangerous way to approach your, your auction. Well, you know, ultimately too, the, the thing about pitchers, it, it's, there's so much volatility. And the, the reason that I often see people suggest that maybe we should pay half for pitchers in auction dollars and maybe we should draft them higher the reason we don't is the volatility. Like, and we know this every year. Like, we, it's easy to look back retrospectively and look at every profit maker and say, oh, I should have spent more, or I should have done this, or I should have done that. The reality is if we knew, we, we would spend more for pitchers. We don't because so many of these arms, like regardless of where they are on the chain, just aren't reliable. Like, you know, it's funny. Like, Jay Happ, I, I really like Jay Happ coming into the season. I was a big fan. Um, thankfully, I didn't get him anywhere because he just had, you know, he just didn't get it done. That's kind of the nature of pitching, and that that's kind of where, you know, we're at. Like, it, it's impossible to have expectations about, you know, our pitchers, our sleepers, the, the even the top arms, and, and not necessarily know what they're going to do. 
And the list is full of them, but it's also full of guys that went for that same kind of mid-range value and ended up being disasters. So it's a very difficult thing. And uh, I guess the, the moral of the story is don't beat yourself up if you didn't see, you know, Shane Bieber coming as a $30 pitcher because nobody did. And it would have been, uh, if you had have done it and succeeded, it would have been more luck than skill, I think. Uh, you also compared the first half pitchers in 2018 with their second halves. I asked you about this as far as hitters, but how likely is it that pitchers maintain what is positive momentum from a first half? It's usually less likely for pitchers just, just because again, there, there's more volatility. Um, you know, what I, what I would probably look for is I would look at some of the arms on the top, like someone like a Verlander or Cole to be more likely to maintain that momentum. Um, everyone in the AL from, from Bieber on down, like I, I wouldn't, well, we obviously know Frankie Montas won't be there because of the suspension and this, this is was assuming he would pitch a, you know, full season, but you know, everybody else, you know, you, you just would expect some, some volatility to get those pitchers a little, you know, and it, it's really the same story in the national league. I, I look at the national league and, you know, outside of Max Scherzer, I, I don't necessarily, you know, if, if you told me that most of these pitchers were, were lower or not here, I wouldn't be surprised too much. I mean, even someone like Walker Bueller, who I'm a big fan of and was ace in the midseason at 26, I wouldn't be surprised to see kind of the volume and, you know, the, the burden of a full season kind of catch up to him. In the Google spreadsheets that you made available through the article, about 28% of this season's saves were amassed by undrafted pitchers, double-digit saves from six guys who weren't drafted, uh, Hector Neris, Luke Jackson, Hansel Robles, Sean Kelly, Roanus Elias, and Ian Kennedy. None of these guys was picked, and here they are with uh, a good number of saves. Is there a lesson here for us that uh, we can use in future years to respond to the seemingly growing uncertainty about who's getting the saves? I, I think the only lesson really to me is there's only a handful of closers that I absolutely want to spend on. So the, the question there becomes, you know, do you want to take what still is a risk at the top or do you want to wait? And I think the answer ultimately comes down to your draft. Like I, I found it interesting in my TGFBI bracket, which is that like expert league of expert leagues, in case your listeners don't know, I wound up with two closers early just because people weren't taking closers. Um, my, my advice is kind of similar to what it's been the last few years. Don't be afraid to take a top closer, but don't stretch. And what you definitely don't want to do, don't stretch on those middle arms. There's so many pitchers now who, are, as you pointed out, are going to become closers. There's just no need to take somebody in the 15th, 16th, or 17th round because you have to take a closer. That, to me, is a mistake. I was just looking at the list, and uh, the top two closers by salary this year, Blake Trinan and Edwin Diaz, both of whom have been dis- really disappointing for their owners, I imagine. And then, But if you go down a little farther, you get Osuna and Chapman, and they've been pretty good. Yeah, well, and that, that's some of it, too, and that's the other side of it. Like I, I have Chapman in a couple places, and he's been great. And, you know, Jeff Erickson keeps pointing out on, on Rotowire on his podcast, you know, Chapman was kind of a bargain. And Chapman's the one pitcher I regretted. Like, Jeff made the smart move of bringing him up early when I think people were still waiting. Uh, you know, I probably should have, somebody, and I'm one of those somebodies, probably should have said, you know, punched him up a dollar more. Um, it, it's just in this context, it's kind of hard to find a pitcher like that who has that reliability across the board. And, of course, even Aroldis Chapman has disappointed his owners in years past uh, through injury or what have you. So it, it is a very... Uh, 
uneasy situation, shall we say. Uh, I agree with the idea that we should be targeting these super reliable closers as long as in the back of our minds we keep the idea that there's no such thing as a super reliable closer. Reliable maybe, but super reliable is a, a bit of a stretch. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. And Mike, uh, during the season, I like to ask our experts about players they think will be boons and banes for the second half. Uh, let's start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners. We'll start in the American League. Who's a hitter you think could be a real boon for his teams? It's funny. We've sort of talked. We sort of just talked about him before. I I still believe to a degree in Jose Ramirez. Uh, he he showed. I, I know he struggled. I, I know he's had difficulty with off speed stuff. Uh, he's shown some signs recently um, of picking it up. Now I, I know it's a small sample. Uh, the thing I like about Ramirez in terms of speculating on him. The stolen bases are still there. Um, you know, he, he has 20 stolen bases this year. Uh, he's 348 batting average in July. Again, I know it's a small sample. Uh, three of his eight home runs have come this month. I, I just like the idea of speculating on, on a talented player if you can. Now, the difficult thing with Ramirez, we know he's not going to be cheap. Like, whoever has him is going to want, uh, you know, to, to get a significant price for him. But if you have somebody who is just completely given up and you cannot pay that, I, I think you have to pounce. Yeah, in, in July, I was looking as a 10.06 OPS, uh, the part of July that's after the All-Star break is 11.25, so he seems to be getting some stuff going, and we can only hope the drawback to it is, and I've been thinking about this as a Jose Ramirez owner in a couple of leagues, including a mixed league where I'm getting offers, is... I'm kind of loath to sell him for 50 cents on the dollar, and I won't, but he's only walking about 2% of the time since the break. Uh, uh, actually, no walks since the break, but in July, it's pretty shaky. Uh, in the National League, Mike, who's a boon hitter for you? It's he's actually not someone who can get better. It's just someone who's kind of underrated. Uh, that's Ian Desmond. Uh, you know, I, I didn't groan like Ian Desmond has been a disappointment in real life, particularly if you, you factor in the, the cores, you know, or build in the, the cores factor. Uh, but, you know, Ian Desmond is on pace to hit, like, in the low 20s in home runs, uh, hit about 270. He hasn't run this year. I mean, that's a disappointment. But if you're looking for low-end power and you're just looking for someone to kind of plug in, I, I think a great player to deal with. You know, never never discount or ignore the course advantage. I, I think from a, a sabermetric or analytics perspective, we can steer at it. But in fantasy, those, those home runs count just as much as, for, for us as they do if you were playing somewhere else. Any concern about the playing time possibilities uh, that maybe he gets edged out? A little bit. Um, I mean, there, there's definitely some risk there. I, I still think he plays enough that the, the team isn't going to just completely give up on him. I, I mean, he signed through <laughs> he signed through 2021 with a club option in, 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 two, in 2022. So I, I really would be surprised, if, unless his back completely disappeared, I'd, I'd be really surprised if the team just you know, completely gave up on him. Especially in Colorado, they have a reputation for leaning towards the guys that they're paying lots of money to over the guys that they're not, that's for sure, especially yeah. young players. Well, like I said, you know, it, it's not like he's a zero either. Like if, he, if he were really scuffling in, at the bottom of the league, I would say, yeah, you, you probably should you know, think about letting him go, but he's, he's not that. Seems to have cut the ground ball rate a little bit this year too, which is always promising. Uh, over to the pitching uh, in the American League, who's a boon pitcher? Oh my gosh! Do I have to pick one? I, I'm <laughs> I'm looking at the American League and I'm like, oh my god, it's it's a very you know sad situation over there. 
Um, you know, the, the pitcher I'm going to go with is, is somebody that we, we talked about a, a little bit before. Uh, that's Jay Happ. Uh, I'm, I'm still a believer. Um, you know, I, I know his problem this year has been with the home runs, and, and the park certainly doesn't help him. But I really believe that Jay Happ is not this pitcher. I, I don't think he's, he's going to put up like a 3-5, but I could see him being closer to upper threes, low fours. You're still talking about a deeper league buying opportunity. But I, I still like him. I, I still think the talent's there. Um, he's somebody I would bet modestly on for a bounce back. You know, the nice thing about Hap is, you know, unless you're in only league two, the price is certainly going to be right. I don't think you're going to have to give up very much to, to speculate on him. Could be in the free agent pools and a lot of uh, shallower mixed leagues uh, because people will have given up. But good team to play for, great ball, bullpen, so he's not going to lose any leads, that's for sure. Uh, and f- how about a Boone National League pitcher? Well, you know, some somebody who's kind of been sneaking up lately, and you know, I've watched, and you know, even though the strikeout rate is low, is, is the shark, uh, Jeff Samarja. Uh, you know, Samarja is somebody who you know came into the season, you know, coming off of an injury, um, you know, really was was kind of down, and then he looked good in April, then he, then he struggled for for the last two months. He's really picked it up in July. I mean, he, he's got a, I know again, it's a small sample, but he's got a one six six ERA, and, and I think it's three starts. Um, but I've also watched him. I've seen a couple of those starts. I don't think this is just a, a blip on the radar. Like, he, he looks better. Uh, it looks like some of the old stuff and, and some of the bite on his pitches is coming back. And, again, this this is sort of similar to what I've talked about before. Uh, the price is going to be right for him. I mean, you're you're not really going to have to give up that much to, to get Jeff Samarja. And similar to Hap, you know, he should be available in, like, a, a standard or 12-team mixed league on the wire in, in a lot of them. Samarja's situation is okay, his uh, ERA is under four, but a couple of his estimators are uh, almost at five. His XFIP and Sierra are both like very high fours. When you're looking at a player from the point of view of maybe I'm looking at acquiring him, maybe I'll see about making a trade, how much stock do you put in those ERA estimators? Uh, you know, a, a lot of it probably depends on like what the pitcher's doing. So what I'm looking for, if a pitcher hasn't made any changes and, and they're just going out there and doing the same thing and, and their ERA is, they're beating the estimators, you know, at, at baseball perspective, ERA is our estimator. Then I'm really wary. Then, then I don't really want to, like, take the pitcher. You know, in Smarge's case, some of it is, is the health, but I think some of it is also, you know, he, he's kind of, He's kind of playing a little bit differently. Um, you know, he struck out nine at, at cores. Um, he's throwing the cutter more. Um, what he seems to be doing is working for him right now. He's a pitcher, so that doesn't mean it's going to be working for him tomorrow. But, you know, that being said, I, I think you kind of ride the hot hand here, particularly because there's just not going to be much of a cost to it. Maybe there's something to this. Mike Gianella's Boons, Jose Ramirez of Cleveland. Go, Jose. Uh, Ian Desmond of Colorado, Jay Happ of the Yankees, Jeff Samarja of San Francisco could be a trade guy as well. Uh, let's move over to the Baines. These are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious. Uh, again, we'll start in the American League. Who's a hitter uh, in the American League who you think could be a Bane? Somebody in, in the American League that I would kind of look out for who has already you know kind of slipped a little bit, hasn't been quite the same since he's come back from injury, is, is Hunter Dozier. Uh, I, I like Dozier. You know, I'm, I'm a fan of his long term, but I do think that a lot of the value that he accrued was was before the injury. Um, he, he's somebody I, I, I believe. If you look, you know, seven of his home runs in, in March and April. You know, you look at his line. Otherwise, he's just kind of been okay. 
So really what, what I'm looking at with Dozier is I'm looking at somebody, yeah, you know, he could be a solid citizen, but if you can get somebody to pay for those, those full-season stats in a trade, I, I would do so. In the National League, who's a Bane hitter? Well, you know, this one came up on our podcast last night, and this is going to be unpopular, and this is obviously just for redraft, uh, but Austin Riley. Uh, Austin Riley, he's kind of this year's version of what Ozzie Albies was last year. So if you remember, Ozzie Albies started out April, like, you know, with just this terrific month. Uh, You throw that out, and Ozzie Albies was kind of just an average hitter. Uh, I'm not saying that, you know, Austin Riley isn't somebody who shouldn't be rostered. He obviously should. But, you know, you look at him, and, you know, he had 356 in his first truncated month in May. Uh, It was seven home runs and 63 plate appearances. Uh, since then, nine home runs in you know 163 plate appearances, very low batting average. Uh, I believe in the player, and the power is going to be there. I, I could just see him being an average drag for for the rest of the season. So, nothing wrong with Riley. Um, and, and again, not saying you should cut him or just give him up for nothing. But if you can get somebody to pay for for the talent and for where I, what I see the future value as in a deal, I would do it. Yeah, and he just doesn't draw walks either, which is a concern for me uh, on a lot of fronts because you want a guy, especially as the season goes on, he should be drawing more of them as he gets more accustomed to what's going on and instead he's drawing less. Uh, uh, back over to the pitching uh, in the American League, who's a Bane pitcher for you? Yeah, I know he's been great. You know, He's the number one pitcher, Justin Verlander. Uh, Justin Verlander, I, I, you know, we were talking about like his expected or, or deserved metrics. They kind of scare me a little bit. You know, he's, he's given up a lot of home runs. I think he's been a little bit lucky. You know, some of his skills is Verlander, but you know, his strand rate is close to 90%. Uh, you know, fly ball rate's kind of high. I, it's just not a good combination, you know, and, and never bet against Justin Verlander. So, again, similar to Riley, I'm not saying to cut him, but I, I could just see some difficulties for Verlander down the stretch. Especially with the home runs, he complained about the ball, and that probably is a big part of it, but they all got to throw the same ball. So uh, Justin Verlander seems like a guy that at this point might be an excellent sell-high candidate because he's got terrific numbers so far this year, good team and all that kind of stuff. So uh, maybe the the value could be in that regard. Uh, finally, uh, in the National League, who's a Bane pitcher? Somebody who I'll admit I was wrong on, and he's exceeded expectations, but I, I'm not expecting to pitch at the same level in the second half. Uh, is Luis Castillo. Uh, Castillo, and like I said, excellent pitcher. I do believe in him. I, I do believe what he's done with the changeup is is legitimate. Uh, you know, what I'm kind of wary about is, is the walk rate. Uh, that That's just a lot of walks for, for a pitcher that you know, a lot of people are already saying is elite. I think that needs to come down. Um, I think he's been kind of lucky that, you know, again, another pitcher with a strand rate not as high as Verlander's, but kind of high. I mean, the other piece, too, is, you know, as, as decent as the Reds' bullpen has been, you know, Verlander has the benefit of a really strong bullpen where you can kind of see why that strand rate is where it is. I don't see the same thing with the Reds' bullpen. So, you know, even if Castillo, you know, can, you know, kind of do it with smoke and mirrors, I think some more inherited runners are going to come in for him. I expect that ERA to be more like a 3-4, like 3-5 a in the second half. He's got a 236 BABIP, uh, we call it a hit rate at Baseball HQ, 24%, which is uh, pretty low, although he did it once before in 2017, albeit in uh, a bit uh, shorter of a season. When you look at these BABIP rates and home run per fly rates and so forth, how much of it do you think regresses to player norm versus league norm? That's really tough to say because especially with so many home runs, it's kind of hard to predict. 
I, I think it tends right now because of where we're seeing the home, where we're seeing the rates. I think it goes much more to league norm. And that's kind of one thing to be careful about. And we kind of see this with Verlander where people look at the skill set and say, well, you know, he should re- regress or in his case, progress to the mean. I just don't necessarily think that's always going to be true this year. Mike Gianella's Baines, Hunter Dozier of Kansas City, Austin Riley of Atlanta, Justin Verlander of Houston, and Luis Castillo of Cincinnati. Uh, Mike, tell our listeners where they can catch up with you, uh, listen to you, read you, and so on. Uh, I'm at Baseball Prospectus. Uh, You can read me there. I have two articles a week typically. I have a fab article every Monday, and then I have a column uh, once a week. I think now I'm backing up to once every other week after the All-Star break. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Mike Gianella, all one word, G-I-A-N-E-L-L-A. And our podcast, Flags Fly Forever, uh, goes out once a week. Uh, Usually it comes out on Friday now. You can listen to that every week. You can also find that at the Baseball Prospectus site. Well, Mike, uh, this has been terrific. I suspected it would be, and uh, of course you didn't disappoint. It was wonderful to have you. Uh, Maybe we'll catch up with you again at least once more during the year, and in the meantime, I'll start thinking about some trade offers in tout. Sounds good. I look forward to seeing those offers from you, Patrick. Thanks. Mike Gianella writes for Baseball Prospectus. When we come back, it's our weekly Talk with Todd. It's Todd Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. He's sitting on 714. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Henry Aaron is coming around third. His teammates are at home plate. And listen to this crowd. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for Talk with Todd. And I'm happy to once again say, Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Good to be back with you, PD. That last week was one of my favorite shows when we do the, the All-Star Roundtable with Ray. That's always fun. Yeah, roundtables are fun, and I think people enjoy them. And uh, it's really good to kind of wrap up the first half and get our sights set yeah. on the second half. You know, uh, this week at Rotowire, I understand that they've been having some trouble with their uh, with their uh, website because there's a power outage in uh, the location where the servers are held. So if you're a Rotowire fan, uh, just be patient. They're working on it as quickly as they can. And when it gets back online, one of the things you'll want to look at is Todd Zola's Z Files story about stolen. Base- I thought this was pretty interesting. I talked earlier with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus about the stolen base category. So let's start with this, uh, Todd. When we're looking at the stolen base category, and this is largely what your article address, it is that sometimes there's hay to be made in the stolen base category, but not always. What's a reasonable expectation of how much ground a fantasy team can make up in the stolen base category, and how do we calculate that potential? Right. Now, the reason this is, we can always have this discussion, and we've had this discussion, but this season, with the stolen base count being down, you can make up even more points than normal, so you ha- you sort of have to spend extra work, or maybe it's not extra work, you can't just categorically dismiss the chance to make up points and steals, because they're more tightly bunched, and 
it, it helps if it's in a trading league because you can trade for a stolen base guy as opposed to try to get one off of the wire. I took a look at some of my 15-team leagues. They, they The majority are non-trading, and they're so bunched that if it were a trading league, you could get five or six points. And in, in some teams, it didn't happen to be my teams, but if you know certain teams get five or six points and maybe lose one or two in other categories, you'd have to find the exact. I didn't try to find the exact perfect trade, but it was more you know I don't even know if that trade exists. But at least on paper, you can gain four or five points in a 15-team league and probably three or four or five points in a 12-team league, which is usually which is a lot. You know that's half a category. That's a lot of points to gain in one category in what's left, what, 10 or 11 weeks at this point. So it's uh, the, 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 the downside is because, because steals are down, the sources of steals are down too. And sources that get you a significant number of steals are down. So, but but there's still it's it's not quite proportionate. The, you could still attack the category and gain the points. It's not as if well, it's all linear, so you can gain as many as you could the previous seasons. There still are guys who are going to steal in the upper end, and you can help a lot. And then it just becomes a matter of balance, as we always talk about category math. How much you're going to lose here? How much you're going to gain there? And can you come out ahead? But the key to it is. Because of the distribution this year being tighter, especially at the top, you, there's there's a potential for another couple of points. So it makes it that much more worthwhile to to uh, to look at it. I think an important point that that you touched on uh, just now is that just because a standard or or an average 15 team league has a bunch of the sort you describe it I'm looking at my FBI team and and it's a 15 team mixed league and for sure you can go from sort of ninth place to third place just by picking up 10 10 steals in the second half or so assuming that the other guy doesn't also do something to keep his momentum going in that department but they're not always like that you have to be very careful about being realistic when you look at the at your league standings and the category standings and saying, you know, based on what I have on my roster, am I going to be able to make up the kind of ground I need to make up? In my 12-team uh, only f- league format, it would be a lot tougher to do that. If you got 10 stolen bases and you were in sort of the eighth spot, you're not going to gain anything, you know, or maybe, maybe one point. And so it would be foolish to go out and expend a lot of resources trying to acquire a 10 stolen base guy who's going to bump your total down the stretch because you're just not going to make the hay that you need to make. Yeah, and you, you alluded to it too, and um, you asked me about it as part of the two-part question at the beginning, and we've championed this for years, and unfortunately, Petey, I hate to tell you, not everybody listens to us, because I think we both steer pe- hear people say, well, with 10 more steals, I could do this, forgetting the fact that we're 60% through the season, so 10 steals is actually 14, because everything, or at least on paper, 14, so you actually need 14 more steals to get the points, and like you said, that assumes everybody does exactly what they're doing, and you know they're not. Uh, Trey Turner was out for a month, so his the, the Trey Turner team is probably going to be accumulating stolen bases at a faster pace than than they were at the beginning. And there's just there's some players that are not running anymore for one reason or another, probably to to save injury or to prevent injury, and some teams that are not running them there. So the pace isn't the same, but even so, you still need to look at a gap, and even if it's just sort of hand-waving a number, if you see 10 in your mind, figure to, you know, to make some error, at this point, 
figure that you need 15 to make up all those points just to give yourself a little bit of a buffer there because getting the 10 all right you're going to catch up but you're not going to pass all of the teams and be realistic too uh, in uh, in my tout league yeah. again i'm i'm one stolen base behind the leader but there's a guy two stolen bases behind me so if i trade if i trade uh, to acquire a stolen base guy all i'm going to gain in the deal is one point and the guy i'm going to catch isn't a guy i need to catch in the overall so it strategically it may not make sense even though i could probably get that extra stolen base point i'd rather go and try to get points somewhere where i can harm the guy uh, or the guys that I'm trying to catch in the overall race. Conversely, if you look down the table a bit, there's four guys, 68, 67, 67, 63. That's a five stolen base gap covering four points. There, it might be worth taking a look at because when you pass more guys, you have a better chance of passing guys that you're actually chasing. Uh, a few years ago, Todd, you wrote an article, I think it was at Baseball HQ, in which you looked at how team success rates affect their willingness to run. And you found that teams who had higher success rates ran more often, teams with lower success rates ran less. Uh, when you looked at it again this time, is it still the case? I, I, I look at it each season, and it's, it's still the case. It was never a... I mean, it was significant. If you look at the correlation coefficient, it was significant enough to write about... But there were still a lot of some. There were some teams that would uh, go against the norm, go against the trend. And I, what's happening this season, at least so far, is there are a few more teams going against the trend. And I think that just that just feeds into the baseball trend of of, of more power, fewer steals, just because the uh, more runs are scored via the home run, teams are less willing to give out the give up the outs. So I, I, I just see that I still look, want to look at it and I still want to get a feel, but I'm not as confident anymore that I can say, you know what, this is a great team to target for steals because they're going to start running some more. I'm not as confident that they're going to follow the pattern just because baseball has changed so much. Your Rotowire article also looks at the success rates of pitchers and catchers at uh, nabbing would-be yeah. base stealers. How does that play into helping pick the stolen base guys we might need if we want to execute the strategy? Yeah, we talk a lot. You know, we talk about our tout wars and our labor and et cetera. I think we forget, or I don't think we forget. We, just, we, we, we need to emphasize more that the majority of leagues out there are daily leagues, whether it be points or head-to-head -head or or, or rotisserie, but the majority of leagues out there, when you add up all the different uh, ESPN and CBS and Yahoo, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, there are more daily leagues than 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 weekly. And in daily leagues, you need, you look at the matchup, and if if it's a rotisserie daily league, and you want to make up some stolen bases, you look at the opposing catcher and the opposing pitcher, and if you've got guys on your on your roster or even available in a free agent pool that are matched up against a weak battery. You float them in. To me, it's a great strategy in general that you don't you don't need to pay for a stolen base specialist, especially say on a Monday or a Thursday if it's a daily league where there's just natural spots in your lineup. You can use Monday and Thursdays to fortify, supplement, embellish your stolen base category, and you can even extrapolate that to something like the NFBC, which you know a lot of a lot of baseball HQ clientele etc so it is it is it's not it's it's a it's an important uh idea to, to to talk about in you get twice weekly moves so 
it's a way you can take a look to see you're deciding between a power hitter and a stolen base guy and just for three or seven week a three or four day segment of the week you can easily look at the teams that they're playing it's a series and put the stolen base guys in against a weaker battery or some pitches that you don't expect to hold runners on very well so it's sort of it's micromanaging it's not as useful when you have once a week moves it still can be, but there's just more things happen during the week. What catcher's going to catch what day? What catcher's going to catch what pitcher? You know, et, et cetera. But on a, in a daily league or even an NFBC type, it's a great way to kind of not focus on steals early in drafts and in auctions and over the course of the season cleverly manage stolen bases to, to supplement the total and not give away too much elsewhere. So if we really, for year-long, season-long type leagues, we can't look at this pitcher-catcher matchups thing as to the same degree that we can for uh, leagues that have shorter time frames. But what can we do to identify players if we want to execute a stolen base strategy? How do we identify the right players to try to track down? Yeah, we should say just in weekly leagues, there are extremes. It's the, the Mets, for instance, are an extreme team. If you're looking, you know, in a weekly league, if you get a series against the Mets, put your stolen base guys in because there's a good chance they're going to line up and, 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 and have a chance to get some steals. But we know, basically, the, the information, the, the data is on fan graphs is where I pull it from. There, there you can look up stolen base uh, success rates and, and number of steals for both catchers and pitchers. You know, you just you call them up, you sort, and you see who's who's uh, what, what what batteries are 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 strong and weak. I I like to do it by catcher, not by team, because there haven't been as many catcher moves this year. But there's been one recently with Martin Maldonado going from the uh, Royals to the Cubs. If you just call up the 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 team stolen bases and just judge by that, you're going to have Martin Maldonado's you know, residual stats on the Royals, and it's going to, why oh, the Royals are pretty good, but the, the truth is, Ken Gallagher, who's picking up a lot of the, the playing time, isn't as good at throwing out runners as Maldonado was, so you have to keep in mind it's, Mald- it's, it's, it's Gallagher, not Maldonado, and on the flip side, especially since Wilson Contreras is on the IL at this point, Maldonado is doing the catching, uh, the bulk of the catching for the Cubs. Their backup catchers were terrible throwing out runners, and that may be one reason why they went out and got Maldonado. Uh, so you, you, the other thing, too, being some of these teams have got one really good and one really bad throwing catcher, so you can't really look at the team numbers, say, for the Red Sox, when you got Christian Vasquez or Sandy, Valone, Sandy Leon. Leon isn't as good as Vasquez, so you've you, you got to get granular and see who's catching that day if you're in a daily league, you can't just, otherwise it looks like it's in the middle. The Red Sox are an average team. Well, if you've got Vasquez, it's it's much harder to steal than if you if you paired with Leon behind the plate. And finally, Todd, what about the risk that piling up a more one-dimensional stolen base guy like, uh, well, Billy Hamilton or Malik Smith, these guys who d- generally don't contribute a lot in the other categories, could cost you as much in those other categories as he adds in stolen bases. This is a critical uh, decision, a critical calculation to make. Right, and it's the balance that we talk about in rotisserie in rotisserie leagues. I I, I deem it category math. Um, it, it just what you can gain, what you can lose. Sometimes the way you have to look at it is I'm not going to win 
if right now. The only way I can win is if I pick up three points in steals. And I maybe it might cost me four in, in runs, in RBI and home runs. But if I do it right and if Jose Ramirez continues to uh, hit well and if if uh, you know if Mookie Betts turns it on and, and gets back to the last year's pace, I'm not going to lose those points. So you make the move. So it, it's it's all category math. It's all where you are within the categories. But you know it's it's one of the what's the uh, what's the, the the line or something like you you can't get a hit if you don't swing. Sometimes you can't gain the points if you don't make the move. To, to do so so and this year it's tougher because as we talked about more runs are scored via the home run than ever before so we always talk about well a home run counts in four cat counts in four categories counts in home runs it's a hit so it counts in batting average and it's a run and it's an rbi well this year it's a greater percentage of the runs in rbi so there's a chance you're giving back more by getting the malik smiths those types so a lot of times that's luck where you happen to be in the category although you can say that you drafted yourself to that spot so it's not luck but still um it all comes down you can like look at i like looking at these studies big picture but at the end of the day it comes down to where my team is within the categories and you have to be realistic about it uh, todd uh, what are you going to be working on over the next little while uh, not exactly sure yet. Sometimes ideas just come to me on a whim. We've got the trade deadline coming up, so we'll we'll try to do some anticipating on uh, the the under the radar players that could have some playing time uh, positively affected if so and so is traded. This is the player, and it's 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 one thing to have the article after the trade's been made and have the and, and have the player and, and and recommend the player at that point it's duh at this point you if you try to be a little proactive and get that player on your roster previous to being traded and obviously you know the obvious example is someone like joe jimenez if shane green is traded but uh looking for some other pitching pitching is tough because when a star i mean you already look to see what happened when when homer bailey and andrew cashner got traded there's you know well, basically because of the teams, there's just no one, no one you're interested in. But if if Madison Bumgarner gets traded, who's going to pick take over the starting role? And the problem with doing with hitters this year, I've you know kind of already begun, is it's really tough to to find some logical hitters that are going to be traded. You you need to find a match. This team needs a you know a first baseman, and this team has one. And they I don't I don't I, there's not as many logical matches as I there seem to be in previous seasons so to find that replacement hitter in advance is a little tough but if you can identify one or two that's uh, one or two more your opponents are going to get Todd Zola thanks a million for helping us I'll talk to you again next week absolutely Patrick have a good week Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball ESPN and RotoWire and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week when we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer, pitcher matchups, and master notes next on Baseball HQ Radio. One ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting. The outfield deep and straight away. Fastball is a high drive into deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone.
for baseball. What a marvelous moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia. What a marvelous moment for the country and the world. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the deep south for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. And it is a great moment for all of us, and particularly for Henry Aaron, who was met at home plate not only by every member of the Braves, but by his father and mother. He threw his arms around his father, and as he left the home plate area, his mother came running across the grass, threw her arms around his neck, kissed him for all she was worth. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the weekend pitcher matchups and master notes. And leading off, our frequent flyer commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Texas second baseman Eli White. And here to tell you all about it is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Although Nashville may be known as the country music capital of the world, it sounds like there may be some white noise coming out of Music City, USA, worth mentioning. As the Major League Baseball trade deadline approaches, 25-year-old Nashville Sound second baseman Eli White is creating some buzz. Traded to Texas in the deal that sent Jerks and Profar to Oakland last December, Eli White, like Jerks and Profar, is a good athlete capable of manning multiple infield positions and stealing bases, according to the 2019 Minor League Baseball Analyst. The 2019 Minor League Baseball Analyst also effuses that Eli White has a compact level stroke that yields above-average contact and line-drive trajectories. More importantly, those line drive trajectories have translated into a career-high 12 home runs so far in 2019, supporting the 2019 Minor League Baseball Analyst's prediction that Eli White could produce average home run totals as he adds strength. However, Eli White's career-high 12 home runs in 2019 have come at a price. Eli White has already struck out 108 times in only 89 games, rapidly approaching his career-high 121 strikeouts in 115 games at Class A Advanced Stockton in 2017. That's why Eli White, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Sure, Eli White's 253 average at AAA in 2019 appears, on the surface, to be rather pedestrian. But let's not forget that Eli White led the AA Texas League in on-base percentage and finished second in batting average for the AA Midland Rockhounds in 2018. Let's also not forget that the Texas Rangers seem to have a knack for developing multi-positional super-utility players. Besides the aforementioned jerks and profar, Danny Santana has split time between six different infield and outfield positions this season, and Logan Forsyth has also played in every infield position for multiple games in 2019. In other words, Eli White's versatility will likely be his calling card to the majors, especially if the Rangers decide to make a trade or two by the July 31st Major League trade deadline. 
And let's face it, multi-positional players such as Jerkson Profar, Ben Zobrist, Marwin Gonzalez, Max Muncy, Chris Taylor, and perhaps even Eli White can be very valuable in filling late-season gaps on both Major League and Fantasy rosters. So if this sounds good to you, be sure to pick up current Nashville Sounds and future Texas Rangers super utility player, Eli White, as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for weekend pitcher matchups, where we look at some of the notable games this weekend, starting with some marquee matchups, both ends of a Saturday-Sunday National League Central cage match, St. Louis at Cincinnati. On Saturday, right-handers Miles Michaelis and Luis Castillo, and on Sunday, right-handers Jack Flaherty and Anthony DeSclafani. And here with the lowdowns on all the showdowns is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. The two teams with the best records in their leagues each have both their starters sporting matchup ratings above one this weekend. In New York, the hometown hitters should live up to their Bronx Bombers nickname as the combined matchup ratings create a differential of 366 in favor of the Yanks. Across the country in L.A., the Dodgers have the biggest mismatchups of the weekend against the Miami Marlins, with combined matchup rating differentials of 790 in their favor. Load your lineups with Los Angelinos as well. In a repeat of the past weekend, we have another pair of matchups on the marquee. This time, it's a National League Central encounter at Cincinnati's hitter-friendly Great American Small Park. Okay, the Reds are in last place, but they're the only last place team with any chance of making the playoffs. Despite being seven games under 500 overall, the Reds are just five games behind the Brewers for the second wildcard slot. At home, Cincinnati is three games over 500, but versus teams over 500, the Reds are eight games under 500. Cincinnati has a run differential of 32, St. Louis has a run differential of only 11. The Cardinals are in third place, three games behind the Cubs and a half game behind the Brew Crew. St. Louis has not fared well away from home, losing six more than it has won. Against teams under 500, the Cardinals are four games over 500. But on the road, they're six games under 500. Give the edge to the Reds. On Saturday, 30-year-old St. Louis right-hander Miles Michaelis is the underdog with a matchup rating of 0-5-0. Michaelis goes up against 26-year-old Cincinnati right-hander Luis Castillo, who has a matchup rating of 163. That's a matchup rating differential of 113 in favor of Castillo. On June 29, BaseballHQ.com Facts and Flukes analyst Greg Pyron took a look at Castillo and pointed out that his expected ERA was a run above his surface ERA. A fortunate hit rate of 25% and a strand rate of 83% are obscuring some red flags for the Reds' Castillo. Among pitchers with more than 50 innings pitched, Castillo's first pitch strike rate is a Major League worst 52% and his control rate is a Major League sixth worst 4.5 walks per nine. In his first 10 starts, Castillo had four PQS dominance and one PQS disaster. In his past nine starts, Castillo has one PQS dominant and three PQS disasters. His luck looks to be evening out. Michaelis was the subject of a July 5 facts and flukes analysis by BaseballHQ.com's Brian Rudd, who concluded that Michaelis may not be able to erase his early season struggles and rebound to his 2018 heights. In his first 10 outings, Michaelis had two PQS dominance and five PQS disasters. In his past nine efforts, Michaelis has one PQS dominant and four PQS disasters. Castillo's season-long BPV is 106 and Michaelis's is 107. 
But Michaelis has not had Castillo's fortunate hit rate and strand rate, so Michaelis has an ERA of 415 and an expected ERA of 409. As a result, Castillo is out-earning Michaelis in roto value $23 to $7. But we project both to earn $16 for the remainder of the season with similar BPVs of 114 for Castillo and 110 for Michaelis. We have to give the edge to Castillo in this one, but it may be closer than it looks. On Sunday, St. Louis's 23-year-old right-hander Jack Flaherty has the higher matchup rating at 121. Cincinnati's 29-year-old right-hander Anthony DiSclefani has a matchup rating of 067 for a matchup rating differential of 54 in favor of Flaherty. DiSclefani has faced the Cardinals six times in the past two seasons. Half of those outings have been PQS decent threes, and the other half have been PQS disasters. In his first nine efforts this year, DiSclefani has one PQS dominant and three PQS disasters. In his past nine outings, he has one PQS dominant and two PQS disasters. Now in his fourth full season as a starter, DiSclefani has been pretty consistent. He's putting up a BPV of 109 after ending 2018 with a 108. He's added a mile per hour to his average fastball velocity, getting up to 94.6, and his dominance rate is a career-high 9.2 strikeouts per nine, but his expected ERA is a career-high 442. BaseballHQ.com facts and flukes analyst Brian Rudd also examined DiSclefani on July 5, concluding that he doesn't look ready to take a step forward. Perhaps BaseballHQ.com's Brian Slack was prescient in our 2019 baseball forecaster when he said Flaherty's hype might outweigh his profit this season. After earning $14 in 5x5 leagues for his sterling rookie year in 2018, Flaherty is earning only half that much in 2019. His ERA is more than a run higher, his whip rose from 111 to 120, and his BPV dropped from 120 to 112. But Flaherty's PQS trend shows some promise. In his first 10 outings, he had one PQS dominant and two PQS disasters. In his past nine efforts, Flaherty has four PQS dominants and two PQS disasters. Flaherty's faced the Reds once in each of the past two seasons and put up PQS dominant fours both times. BaseballHQ.com's starting pitcher buyer's guide analyst Stephen Nickran noticed that Flaherty's ugly June was caused by a rough strand rate of 58% and home run per fly ball rate of 28%, noting that his foundation of skills was quite sturdy. Flaherty should fare well this Sunday. To recap, load your lineups with Yankees and Dodgers as if you're going back to the 50s for their exciting World Series rivalry during that decade. On Saturday, stick with Castillo, but don't count out Michaelis. On Sunday, fly with Flaherty. And use the BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Matchups tool to choose your pitchers every day. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a Pitcher Matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his weekend Pitcher Matchups report here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week I want to talk about a new way to assess starting pitcher efficiency, pitches per out. We all have our different ways of watching our games on TV when one of our fantasy pitchers is on the mound. My approach is to curl up in the fetal position and peer at the screen through my fingers. Just kidding. I can't look through my fingers because they're holding on to a tall glass of Maker's Mark bourbon, especially when Mike Leake is pitching. Actually, I sit bolt upright and I pay close attention. And lately, I've been paying particular attention to how many pitches my guy is using to get his outs. 
Over time, based on this informal estimating tool, I've come to the conclusion that a pitcher getting around one out for every five pitches was going well and had a pretty good chance at a good game. He'd get deeper into the game, which would improve his chances for a win. He wouldn't be allowing many base runners, improving his chances for a positive outing on the whip side. And those fewer base runners would mean fewer runs against, improving his chances to help the ERA. But we all know that this kind of informal, anecdotal, observational info is not the stuff of which decisions should be made. So I thought I'd look into it in a little more detail. And guess what? I was actually pretty close. I used Baseball HQ's PQS logs from the leading indicators page to get data from all the Major League Baseball starts through Tuesday. A bit of jiggery-pokery with Excel, including filtering for non-opener starters who had at least 10-plus starts, and I had a pretty interesting, in-depth information set. First, I'll give you a couple of overview items. Of the 2,187 starts by qualified starters with 10-plus starts, the average pitches per out was 5.5. But in pitcher wins, that average was down to 5.1 pitches per out. In losses, it was 6.4 pitches per out. Putting it in reverse, 50% of starts with 5.1 pitches per out or lower were wins, versus 26% of starts over 5.1 pitches per out. That 5.1 pitches per out is a real dividing line. As well, pitches per out correlates pretty well with both ERA and WHIP. Again, for pitchers with 10-plus starts, their season-long correlation is 0.43. That's a scale where 1.0 is a perfect correlation, 0.0 is no correlation at all. While whip correlates with pitches per out at 0.53, which is even better. These pitches per out data next made me wonder which pitchers this season have the best ratios. So I stacked them all up from lowest to highest, again only pitchers with 10-plus starts. 17 pitchers were at or below that 5.1 pitches per out cutoff I mentioned earlier. The best, Hyunjin Ryu of Los Angeles, 4.8 pitches per out this year. And the list of those top guys contains many of the names you'd expect. Kershaw, Tanaka, Greinke, Hendricks, Barrios, Verlander. There are also a few names that might raise an eyebrow but not come as a complete shock. Yanni Chirinos of Tampa is having a good year, and he's only a couple of hundreds behind Ryu at the top of the table. Also, Michael Soroka of Atlanta having a good year. Herman Marquez of Colorado, Ross Stripling of the Dodgers, Joe Musgrove of Pittsburgh, Brett Anderson of Oakland, Miles Michaelis of St. Louis, a bit of a surprise, and CC Sabathia and Domingo Herman of New York. But there is one name that really sh might shock you. It certainly did me. Glenn Sparkman of Kansas City is 7th in the rankings at just 5.0 pitches per out. Now, this might be an artifact of a smaller sample. Sparkman barely scraped into qualifying with his exactly 10 starts and had only 842 pitches so far this year, about half the others on the list. Sparkman makes a more important point, I think, by showing the dangers of a metric like this one. He has a good ratio that's anomalous with the rest of his performance because he's not a good pitcher. Sparkman, first of all, is a very low strikeout pitcher, 5.2 strikeouts per nine this season and 5.6 strikeouts per nine in 13 total starts over the last two seasons. Now, low strikeouts tend to reduce pitch counts and therefore pitches per out rates. But Sparkman's ERA this season is 4.54, which is pretty meh at best, and looks overcooked, considering his expected ERA is well over 5. 
for his career. His ERA is over five and his expected ERA is higher still. So don't rush out to grab Glenn Sparkman based on pitches per out. I think the best approach right now is to use the metric as a first indicator or maybe as a tiebreaker. You need to look at the deeper stats first. And even if you don't have moves to make, Keep track of how many pitches your pitchers this weekend are taking to get their outs while you watch them on TV. As it goes along, you'll have a pretty good idea of how likely you are to get a win, if nothing else. While I was organizing the PQS logs for this week's edition of Masternotes, I also ran a quick study to see how ERAs and whips had been affected by the worst starts of every pitcher's season. In a nutshell, I logged every pitcher, again 10 plus starts, calculated a score for each start using a formula ERA plus 3 times whip, and then subtracted out the worst score, the highest score, from each pitcher's overall record. Many, even most, of the biggest impacts among starters' ERAs involve pitchers whose ERAs and whips were already pretty bad, even without their one bad outing, and just slightly less horrible when it was removed. I saw a lot of 6-plus ERAs dropping into the 5-plus territory, and a lot of 150 whips dropping to 140. But some bad outings did affect some good pitchers. The first of these is Pablo Lopez of Miami. His decimals at the time I did the study were 423 ERA, 112 whip, and that's pretty good. But his May 10th outing at City Field was a catastrophe. Four innings, 10 earned runs, 12 base runners. Take that outing off of Lopez's record, and his decimals improve to 318, 1.0, and he looks a lot like one of the best pitchers in baseball. Another pitcher really blasted by a bad start was Domingo Herman of New York, also a low pitches per out guy, whose already impressive 349-107 decimals would fall all the way to 288-104 had it not been for a five-inning, seven-earned run, nine-base-runner stinker at Kansas City in late May. And how about David Price? His 316-115 already pretty impressive, but knock off the six Ernies and six base runners he gave up on June 13th at home against Texas, and his decimals are 259-110. And finally, what about Hyunjin Ryu? Already otherworldly at a 178 ERA 097 whip. He starts bordering on intergalactic at 129.087 if we wipe off his June 28th start at Colorado. Four innings, seven earned runs, ten base runners. Not surprisingly, by the way, at Colorado starts are by far the most common among these duds, along with at LA, at Milwaukee, and at Philadelphia. Good teams and sometimes great parks for hitters. The obligatory caution again is this. What has happened is not reliably predictive of what is going to happen. And naysayers about these kinds of studies argue persuasively that the one bad start did happen and we can't just discount it. I'm not so sure I agree with that second point. There's a reason we call outliers outliers. And that's because we believe they can be discounted as being so anomalous as to be non-indicative of a player's true potential. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. 
And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 19th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 32 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus, an excellent fantasy baseball analyst and writer, a terrific Twitter follow, and a great guest for us here on the show. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky, and our weekend pitcher matchups were presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well to Todd Zola, our regular guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can also stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me, and please do, on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast iTunes, wherever you catch your pods. And if they allow it, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and rating, which really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. That's Scott Pianowski on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.